2: We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day.
3: Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary
4: Rose for our now weekly, again, uh, debate slash get together slash excuse to just rip the shit out of each other um, with with history stuff. Uh, Hey, everyone. How you doing? Hey. Yeah, Hi. that was the most half-arsed <laughs> thing trying to sound like we um, are not totally fucking hacked off with life. Uh, right, okay. <clears throat> Today, you all thought you'd be really funny last week when we were doing, what were we doing last week? The fact or fiction fail thing. And you were all going on about squirrels and stuff in the chat. And I was like, right, you fuckers, if you want to spend all night going on about animals, then you can do it. <laughs> so we are doing. I don't. We didn't even really decide. It's like history's most epic animal anecdote or whatever. And yeah, that's what we're doing anyway. So, I'm guessing Holmes will just disca- de- decide the criteria. You're right, Holmes. How you doing?
5: I'm oh, not too bad. Um, why am I deciding the criteria? Is it just? The, are we just going to go off the most entertaining story?
4: Yeah, just whichever one turns you on, basically, by the end of the night
5: okay i didn't realize i was gonna put that slant on it but
4: i'm (laughs) fucking is it is it the
6: sexiest animal
4: you do kind of have an assistant judge although um she may not be able to speak for most of it beth is here she is the leper in the corner beth has covid don't you beth
7: well we hope not but we'll find out soon enough i'm sure
4: I i just don't see what else it can be with your symptom list and the way it hit you like a freight train um What have you got to say to anyone who's not wearing a mask and saying it's all a fake conspiracy? (laughs) Fuck off, all of you.
7: (laughs) (laughs) I've never (laughs) felt so ill in
4: my whole life. Yeah. So Becky here, she's in her Minnie Mouse onesie. She'll probably be on mute a lot because she can't stop coughing. But at least she made it. Before we get started, guys, we all need to spare a thought for Dorman, who cannot be with us tonight. Dorman has been admitted to hospital. Um, We hope that he's going to be Okay but basically he saw the trailer for that new Emily Blunt film and heard the Irish accent <laughs> and was and was hospitalised. Um, he's doing okay. They're hoping to release him in the next couple of days, but he was heard screaming, it's a hate crime. It's a hate crime. Um, I, did, have you, I watched the trailer when he sent the link down. <laughs> Arthur of God. How can Jamie Dornan not do an Irish accent? when he's from northern ireland and secondly is anyone else clock charlie you're a film student they're doing that whole unrequited hate, like love from when we were teenagers thing i think is what i gather from it no but that. they're like oh. 10 years too old
3: it's and not like that, that horrible kind of normal people thing that everyone was crazy about at the beginning of lockdowns. like oh come on
4: but this is the thing it's like they're they're sitting there and they're kind of they're doing the whole, oh, we've been in love forever and haven't got around to telling each other, which makes an all right film, I'm guessing, if in the, they're in their 20s or 30s. But when they're all, like, he's going bald. She's a mother of two teenagers or whatever in real life. I love her to so don't get me wrong, she's excellent. But I'm looking at her, I'm thinking, at that age, you just look pathetic. And also, oh. the whole Irish, like, vibe to the... I, I'm going to say this because I think the whole of Ireland fucking agrees with me. It's like an American who just is, is massively enamoured by all that fiddle-dee-dee crap He's <laughs> never been to Ireland in his life, went into a room in Hollywood and pitched it and said, yeah, there's this great little country that hardly anyone's heard of called Ireland, right? And it's really cute and it's really green. And then he formatted the whole thing based on the Irish tourist Board advert. Guys, who else has watched the trailer?
8: Yeah, I have, yeah.
4: It's bad, isn't it?
8: I kind of have to believe that when you get into your late thirties, that you can still find love.
4: <laughs> I know that's true, but the fact that they've known each other since they were kids or whatever and lived on the next farm or whatever the fuck it's called, <laughs> and they're still like they're in their early forties. I mean, you just get your shit together. I'm not going to give you an hour and a half of my life because you can't get your shit together. You're running also- out of options now. You on the left with the, I don't know what that hair's about, Emily, you're like basically approaching menopause now. Jamie, how many other options have you got living on a farm in the middle of nowhere and um, where the guy from Mad Men comes into it randomly in some old car, which has thrown anybody, everybody because no one even knows when this
6: is set.
9: If we can get to the reason that we're really here tonight, which is trying to pimp out Chris. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Ladies, if you're listening, yeah. call 07. <laughs> Chris
4: is available um, and it's lovely.
9: And like ships.
4: And he's not um, single because he couldn't get his ship together. So well, he's not like a sado on a farm looking at his neighbour for thirty years and doing nothing about it.
5: Chris, I think no, this is really helping. What do you think? Yeah, but <laughs> it's good. I mean, I've been I've been divorced six months,
8: and my ex-wife has just proposed to her boyfriend, so um, she's been seeing for a year. So. Um,
4: I've yeah. never met your ex-wife, but the fact that she's done the proposing, like, does that smack a desperation a bit? <laughs> no no, can't. Can't. no
8: <laughs> comment, there's
10: kids involved, no comment. <laughs> Chris, if you dump the ships, I'll date you.
8: <laughs> go on. No well, I'll, go back, I'll go back to airplanes.
10: Yeah. <laughs> shit.
8: Well, I've, got, um, I've got a lot of books on German soldiers, so it's uh, all Star Wars. That's oh, just, Kate, they they know just a big This single. Then. We
11: found the reason.
4: <laughs> You've met Kate. Kate likes Star Wars. Me? No, no. not the other Kate. No, look at the horror on Kate Spooner's face right now. No, Kate. <laughs> anyway, right. Let's get around the introductions. We, we've established we are, why I'm, Dorman isn't here. Kate Spooner is here after a very long interval. Where have you been?
12: I've I've just been. It's all been a bit shit. So
4: yeah, I haven't been here. It's fine, now. Sort of. How how is spain in lockdown are you in lockdown again
12: yeah well sort of so we've got um we're not allowed to do anything fun after six o'clock um <laughs> unless it's at home and um we're not allowed out of our houses after 10 o'clock for any reason unless like i don't know you're dying or something
4: well it's like the whole gremlin theory again isn't it can you only transmit after yeah. 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I think what it is now is stopping idiots who think it's okay to go out and get drunk with their mates all night, isn't it? Which is essentially what we've done in England and what they're trying to do in Poland and no one's listening. Alina is in the house, You're
10: right, Alina? I am here. I was just struggling to unmute my microphone there as I was typing message because they're starting in the chat room again.
4: Oh, we need to find a new microphone. Roger's not happy. <laughs> That's a no comment from a leader. Right, Marcus is in the house. Marcus's Wi Fi is knackered. You're right, Marcus.
9: Evening, how are you doing?
4: How was furlough?
9: Furlough's productive. Like, I'm getting a lot done. So, you know, things need to get done. It won't last. Bit of bit of those side hustles that don't pay because, you know, we don't pay historians. But yeah, it's good.
4: Yeah, people think that (laughs) everything we do is free and comes out of no effort whatsoever. Keeps me busy,
9: do what I
8: like.
4: (laughs) i'm just hanging i'm just jobless and hanging zach how you doing i'm all right how you doing mate yeah not bad how's the washing machine
11: oh don't get me started
4: (laughs) i love it it's like i'm not sure who has more antipathy is it chris for his ex-wife or is it zach (laughs) for his washing machine
11: no it's me let's let's be absolutely clear no disrespect to chris it's definitely me (laughs)
4: Outstanding, Charlie's back. All right, Charlie, have you recovered from the election? I know you put five sleepless nights into watching Pennsylvania <laughs> out very slowly.
3: Ah, oh, it has been I, the season finale of America at the moment, guys. If you're not watching, it's it's incredible. I don't know who's writing this shit, but you know who the star is for me. Who's um, that, Larry,
4: the journalist that BBC were using? I've forgotten his surname. Ah. Oh. Uh, He's I've been, I've, been
3: in CNN. I've, been, I've been in I've been I've uh, been in America. With Larry
4: Adowu, I think it is. Um, I'm sorry if I've just butchered his name, but he was outstanding. They went to him at like four in the morning his <laughs> time one night and were like, What's going on, Larry? He went, Well, I'm not stressed at all and I'm not pulling out what's left of my hair and I don't need any sleep. And I haven't just been sitting here refreshing the electoral website for the last eight hours.
3: And they were like it (laughs) got so bad it got so bad I was refreshing the New York Times feed in the bath so I was like I I can't miss anything
4: that's
5: a euphemism I've not heard for a while
4: (laughs) 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 typically typically she went for a piss just as Minnesota declared
3: (laughs) having sat there watching nothing happen no it's true I'd just woken up and uh, yeah refreshed my phone oh Minnesota yeah in the bathroom great (laughs) Uh, how
4: much cake did you eat
3: how much cake lots lots I baked all morning on the Tuesday just because I was so so nervous but yeah I made brownies and and red velvet cake and I made a mac and cheese and I I made hummus oh your hummus
4: is amazing though (laughs) thank you if you weren't married already I'd marry you Lucy how's it going
6: uh still 2020 so still shit
3: yeah
4: then (laughs) I won't fucking end will it never no, and then Ivy's well again. Twitter saw the Ivy drama, and it turns out she just wanted some attention, and it cost you three hundred quid in vets bills.
6: That's exactly it, uh, and I'm glad that I took her to the vets. And they just couldn't tell me what was wrong with her, and just told me to fuck off after ten minutes. That was, you know, a solid one hundred ninety-five pounds. Um, so <laughs> it, was right it was the right decision. It was the right decision. They
4: just—they know they've got us over a barrel, don't they? Because you're always going to do it. All right, who else have we got? We got Lockie as well. You're right, Lockie.
2: Yeah, good. Nice to be back to normal with a, with a stupid podcast after doing a serious one. Oh, uh, do you know what? It's anyway. gone
4: down so well though. You and Holmes did so well on that one. Good. It's banging. It's up there with download rates with uh, Nikolai's and you know, everyone is in love with Nikolai. So, uh, Ooh. yeah. Really good, uh, chat there. We did the Battle of the Somme and we did, uh, why it wasn't futile, didn't we? And we talked about tactical development stuff. And Holmes did this awesome little sort of remembrance thing for this group of poor bastards because it, it supposedly ends on the 18th of November. And he sort of explained how a week later, these poor gits were still in a trench, weren't they, Holmes?
5: Yeah, incredible story, really.
4: Yeah, it nearly made him cry once, but that is in the podcast. If you want to go and read it, uh, listen to it. Clive's here. You're right, Clive. The marvelous oh, podgo of history hack. Save the best till past. Oh,
1: I've worked out this week that I haven't been in a suit or in a lift since March, which is quite odd.
4: So, how many of you guys? Like I know Marcus, you had to put your suit on for Remembrance Day, but like Holmes and Lockie and that. When was the last time you wear you had to wear a suit? And do you think they'd still fit?
5: I haven't had to wear uh, a suit. I, think, I haven't
2: had to wear a suit for years, but um, okay. so definitely, definitely not. I wore a suit on uh, the first day of my tutoring. Um, thing which i started uh, a few weeks ago and that was my one and only occasion in one
4: did you have to suck your stomach in or is it all right
2: i spent most of my time doing that to be fair <laughs>
4: <laughs> and james is here as well he's already piped up you right, james
13: <laughs> yeah not too bad just been trying to keep busy with family research and thanks to Holmes for helping me with that confusing situation
4: <laughs> and beth yeah. as well he did oh some. and
13: beth as well yeah yeah
4: Holmes is doing. You're like- welcome. <laughs> right, okay. Should we get to the point? Should we discuss animals? Um, I mean, do you know what? I'm going to because this I'm going to get this out of the way because I just I can't be bothered with this story, but I know she's absolutely in love with it, and we've all got to just take our medicine and sit through it. Alina, yeah, tell us about the most epic animal ever in the history of the world. Oh, you're not going to make <laughs> it win anyway. So, to it's be not honest- up to me, I'm impartial. <laughs> I just let it be known that I fucking hate dogs and that Clive slated South London earlier on today. Holmes, where do you live?
5: South West London. That's a different hey. bit of Clive Oh, talking. no, no. It was
4: everything <laughs> south of the river was in their uh, abuse range. Um, so, yeah, well done, Clive. Alina, go on.
10: Okay, so I'm actually going to start with something quite... It's, it's going to be a little bit depressing because this part of history always is really sad and blah, 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 and you're going to be like, oh, you're ruining the mood. I don't care. You suck it up. But it gets better. Oh god, right, so it's a bear, right? No, stop it, you're ruining really
4: it, shush. Oh, anyway. I really last week you were doing a bear.
10: Yeah, but not on here. People know this, but mm. other people don't know this. You ruined the yeah, surprise. Get on with it. Right, okay, anyway, so, 1st <laughs> September 1939, I have to do some background info, otherwise some people may not understand what I'm talking about. Um, there was a war, the end. <laughs> well, <about> Poland. Poland. <laughs> <laughs> Poland gets invaded. By Germany. Poland then gets invaded on the 17th of September 1939. By Russia, Poland is now fucked.
4: England Um, doesn't help. Blah, blah, blah.
10: Yeah. So 1.5 million Poles get deported to Siberia. Uh, Mm -hmm. Approximately half of them die and perish. Uh, June 1941, Germany invades Russia. Russia pretty much goes, oh shit. Uh, and starts to release Poles. Um, a load of them get evacuated out of the Soviet Union through Iran. In the spring of 1942, which is exactly where our story begins. The spring of 1942. Uh, Polish citizens uh, accompanying Anders army uh meet on their journey a young boy, and the young boy is carrying a baby brown bear. So uh Irena Um Bokevich basically convinced a lieutenant to buy him. Uh this bear is in really, really, really bad condition. Um, they pay some Persian coins for him. They give some chocolate, a Swiss army knife and a tin of beef to the young boy. So this bear ends up under her care for the first three months in a Polish refugee camp near Tehran. And they call him Wojciech or, in other words, Wojtek. In Polish, that means happy warrior. So he ends up being adopted by the 2nd Transport Company, which is later known as the 22nd Artillery Supply Company, which I'll be referring to from now on. The problem was he had severe issues swallowing food. So they fed him condensed milk. Alex, can you guess from what? A baby bottle. Try again.
4: Like when people do that drunken thing where you have to use the siphon to do a pint and then they all throw up it's a rugby thing lucky or no
10: no you're going completely the wrong way so poles so they clearly use from a potato not a potato but what can you what can you make potatoes from
4: vodka a vodka bottle oh that is outstanding
10: did they feed him from a vodka bottle they fed him condensed milk from an old vodka bottle god
4: bless poland
10: So the soldiers ended up donating loads of rations to him. And uh, let's just add this on top. He also drank beer. Of course he did. So he is a beer drinking bear. It gets better, gets much better. He actually ends up having his own mug. And he would get really sad if nobody put beer or wine in his mug and then they so turn the bear into an alcoholic is what oh, yeah tot- Polish. hello <laughs> that was bad as the irish Oh you shit, it because you're polish the rest of us will not comment that's okay um <laughs> so it gets even worse than that actually funnier than that he um he starts to smoke so not only is he a drinking bear he is a smoking bear um he would get a packet of cigarettes pop a cigarette in his mouth wait for somebody to light it, have a couple of puffs, and then eat it.
4: <laughs>
10: <laughs> sounds, sounds and still
4: sounding like one of uh, Lockie's rugby club get-togethers. One.
10: <laughs> so what he would do, he'd sleep with the soldiers. Uh, he spent a lot of time with his humans. He would imitate them, so he'd learn to walk on his back legs. And then he learned to shower like a human. Not only did he learn to shower, this actually helped because there was a would-be ammo thief in the camp. One day, comes into the camp and is faced with a six-foot bear. Drunk six-foot bear. No, actually. You, that you say, you yeah. say, that, he, you say <laughs> that he was drunk. Apparently, um, the amount he would drink couldn't... Because you've got to remember, this is like a 14-stone bear. You know, he wasn't getting drunk. Not enough to get him drunk.
2: Oh, he still gets drunk.
10: <laughs> yeah, Lockie's, Lockie, you're more than 14
4: stone, aren't you? Because you're a man mountain.
2: Well, many, many more stones, yes.
4: Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and this bear sounding quite puny right now. <laughs>
10: <laughs> anyway, moving on. So he followed the 22nd Artillery Supply Company through Iraq, Syria, Palestine and Egypt. He was then, um, so the company was then reassigned to uh, fight alongside the British 8th Army uh, in the Italian campaign. However, there is a problem. They cannot take their bear with them, why? Because the British, yes, the British, banned animals, pets and mascots. So how did the Poles get around this? Clearly the Poles do get around this. Uh, they signed him up as a private. So he now becomes an actual bear in the army. He had his own rations, paybook, rank and serial number. He ended up living with his men in their tents as well. So wherever the men were, the bear was. He ended up fighting in Monte Cassino. But how do we get to this? Because it happens in May 1944 because the poles get under some severe shell fire. So Wojtek climbs a tree because he's he's scared. There's, there's a lot going on. I mean, even for soldiers, it was a horrific moment. He's he not actually, that fucking hard then, is what you're saying. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. He watches his humans <clears throat> then from this vantage point, up high in this tree carrying crates of artillery shells so what he does because usually he would get treats for like imitating his humans um he got down extended his two front paws so the soldiers basically gave him crates of shells to carry so he would carry shells crates of shells to help his humans um even though the place was being bombarded and it was pure and utter hell he carried on he got promoted. He is now a corporal. Okay, no more private. He now outranks quite a significant part of the army as a corporal and a bear. 18th of May, 1944, the Poles capture the mountain fortress of Monte Cassino. Um, They attribute that success partially to Wojtek's help. The company ends up changing their badge to a bear, carrying an artillery shell, obviously, because Wojtek is so cool. he was basically a brother to the men. He helped them psychologically, physically, and he just was one of the guys. So the war ends. They take him with him to a settlement in uh, Winfield Airfield. At this point, Poland is going under some severe problems, you know, the communist stuff. The communists want him to go back to a Polish zoo, you know, let's glorify our hero. Woohoo! Um, the soldiers go, ah, uh-uh, we're not going back. We're not taking him back. Um, Once they finally started finding their place in in England, they decided to put him in Edinburgh Zoo. So he found his permanent home. Soldiers would come and visit him, throw cigarettes down to him, um, like back in the old days. When he died, he weighed 35 stone, which I don't think Lockie weighs, by the way. No, I mean, Lockie's face was pretty much, I haven't weighed 14
4: stone since I was nine, but he definitely doesn't weigh 35
10: stone. Right. So he weighed 35 stone, which for, um, other people who are listening is 220 kilo. He was way over six foot and he died at the age of 21, 22. So 1963. Um, in 2011, they released a film about him in 2015. Oh, uh, the Scots and Poles raised 300,000 pounds for a bronze statue in Edinburgh, uh, in West Princess St, uh, St. Gardens. uh, Waste Princess St. Gardens. God took me a while to say that. Um, there's statues about him. There's books about him. He is all over YouTube, the internet. Um, and I think one of the Polish societies is actually doing a talk about him in a couple of weeks, or it could be even this week. Um, which if you double check my Twitter timeline, uh, I will retweet it if anybody's interested. So, thank you very much. That's Wojtek. Have a nice night.
4: Jesus, a smoking, drinking, mad Polish bear. To be fair, there's a grudge in respect there. It's quite amusing, and it's not a dog, which means it gets points from me, Holmes.
5: Yeah, no, I like that one. It's sort all of ticked all the boxes: human behaviour, bags, booze, war. I mean, I think. First of all, that I'm not entirely sure that a bear, a bear's probably worth more, isn't it, than some chocolate, a Swiss army knife and a can of beef. I mean, I'm not Martin Lewis, but that seemed a bit unfair on the little boy to me.
4: Yeah, exploitation, the poor little Iranian boy. But it doesn't well, look like he was looking after it very well.
5: No, true. And then given how rubbish animals tend to be around fireworks, was placing him with an artillery unit possibly the most sensible thing?
4: <laughs> it seems like everything, every decision they made from giving it vodka and fags to putting it in an artillery unit was done for shits and giggles.
5: Yeah. and But he went with it. So fair, fair play to the bear, to be honest. I mean, it's very similar. and I don't know if anyone else has picked. Um, oh, is it Jackie? Who, who was a, a A baboon that was carried around by um, a South African regiment in the First World War, who basically used to do all that stuff as well, apart from carrying the shells. And he learned to salute officers and stuff without having to be told. But, you know, he may pop up later.
10: Yeah. are
2: better than Australians then.
10: (laughs) (laughs) But Wojtek was really cool. He is a hero and he did do a lot for, you know, just being a bear, right? Well, that. It's not,
4: considering you, it's not the worst choice you've ever made. He, he
9: drinks, right. he smokes, he's six foot tall, he's hairy. Are we not sure this isn't just a soldier?
10: It's <laughs> a I, Russian soldier. I've seen <laughs> no <laughs> evidence
9: that this is a bear right now.
10: Marcus, go on Google, Google
4: him. There are so many pictures of this bear. He's It'd so be funny cool. if it was and they put him in a zoo. I think
9: it's just a really hairy bloke. <laughs>
2: Uh, get, go on go on google, uh, google and google and up uh large polish bear yeah.
0: <laughs> and at, the end, he's, at the end of the day he
9: sits in edinburgh people chuck cigarettes at him also sounds like a soldier yeah.
10: Lock, are you sure that's not going to come up with a picture of you if we google polish bear large polish hairy bear uh Alina, you need to go back to the week
4: long <laughs> chat about definitions of a bear that we've had on Twitter.
13: And Zachs Google history.
4: Yeah. <laughs> and then you'll realise <laughs> how funny that statement is. Uh, I think it's only fair that um Bertie do some judging tonight as well. Um and his face, uh, to be honest, pretty much looks like I could take him. I don't think Bertie's necessarily that impressed. Is Beth impressed?
7: Um Oh God! Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I like that story. I mean, what? Again, like home said, what's not to like? It's a, it's a bear doing things. So. There's
4: No sex. There's drugs and rock and roll, but there's no sex. Which is
7: a shame. But <laughs> no, I like that story. <laughs> no, I do have one question. How did he get paid? <laughs> like
4: by food. He food. In order, like everyone else.
5: Bank transfer
4: last Friday of the month. <laughs> no, <but> they <laughs> all <laughs> got food and fags, So.
10: Well, he was quite naughty, apparently, as well. So they had um, Christmas Eve dinner all lined up for like the whole camp and he demolished a lot of it.
4: (laughs) He's just gone up in my estimation because of that. (laughs) Right. Thank you very much, Alina. Uh, I think that's probably going to end up being a contender tonight. Let's go on to a bloke next. Let's go to, let's do Marcus. Because I, I missed this on the group chat, which Mark, I don't think. Marcus, did you reveal what you'd pick? Yes.
9: Yes, I did. I thought I'd go for the most Marcus one of them a lot, basically. Did the
4: horse skeleton in the National Army Museum?
9: No. Okay. That's Marango. Going for completely opposite side of that, Copenhagen. Copenhagen was the Duke of Wellington's horse for much of the Peninsula War and Waterloo. But not only was he Duke of Wellington's horse, he has a bit of character to Copenhagen, so I quite like him. Uh, he was a, uh, a, pro- a, a racehorse, a prize-winning racehorse, uh, and was born during the uh, British expedition to uh, Denmark, where basically we went over and bombed the Danes because we wanted uh, Napoleon to uh, not have their ships. Uh, it wasn't our finest hour, but it was a pretty good battle. Uh, so he gets born there and comes back and does a bit of racing, uh, wins a couple of races. Uh, people put a lot of money on him. And then he ends up um, getting bought and going out to the Peninsular War with uh, Lord Stuart, Charles Bain, um, up to Londonderry. Uh, so he's, he's out there and uh, gets bought by the Duke of Wellington, who serves on him, I think, from 1813 all the way through to late 1814. Um, he sees a lot of the Duke's battles and rides in and out of safety quite a few times. Most importantly, if we skip to 1815 in the Battle of Waterloo, the duke rides him all day at Ligny, sorry, Catchabra, He rides back and forth and then at Waterloo itself. At both Catchabra and Waterloo, he's actually uh, so apt that he jumps over the form squares. That's four sides where you have four ranks, two kneeling, two standing. And Copenhagen's known to basically jump over them and into the square uh, with cuirassiers and French. Um, horseman on the Duke's heels and saves the Duke's life quite a few times. The Duke's in the saddle for about 18 hours uh, during the day and basically he's a, he's a micromanager. Everywhere the battle is, uh, the Duke is and so Copenhagen's really quite busy and compared to most of the officer's horses, he's uninjured. You read many accounts from uh, field officers and they realise that their horse will have seven or eight musket balls in them they won't even notice. is incredibly lucky and is jumping everywhere. But he has been riding hard for about 17 hours. At the end of the day, the Duke gets off. He's won his famous victory, could have lost at any moment, and he walks on the back to uh, tap Copenhagen on the back to wish him well done. And Copenhagen's had enough of this shit. He lashes out, poof, and almost takes off the Duke's head. So it could have basically been an amazing footnote history that the Duke of Wellington won Waterloo and then uh, had his head taken off by his horse. He kind of gets semi-retired. Uh he gets ridden by the Duke all over Europe in many victory parades and many things in London. And then gets uh taken to Stratfield Say. At Stratfield Say, the Duke's country home, he's known as being basically a bit of a ladies' man. And I don't mean mayors, I mean the passing ladies he would come to admire is pretty stallion. And he's apparently really fond of sweet treats, especially uh, sweet buns and cakes, and is known to whinny and nay and twitch his ears for them. So he lives a very good <laughs> retired life, getting basically too fat, uh, until 1836, where he dies uh, a stroke because he's had too much food, which is a great retirement. Uh, he's given a full military uh, funeral and uh, is laid to rest underneath an oak tree at Stratford sake where you can still visit his grave site. It's a really nice, peaceful spot. And right by the front door shows the uh, close connection the Duke had with his horse. So in summary, Copenhagen, very good horse, a lot of character, sprightly spirit, helped win the Battle of Waterloo.
4: Done. Um, also, we cannot, we cannot start talking about war horses and not go to Lucy because that's her bag. Coke shits all over Marengo, she says.
6: That's true. Yeah, you know, weirdly, with Marengo, there wasn't actually a horse uh, named that on record anywhere. Interesting. I'm just not going to take that up with the museum there. But yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's true.
4: Copenhagen's mum was a famous war horse.
6: Yeah, called Catherine, which I thought was the weirdest name for a horse ever. I don't know. And 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 his uh, father was called John Bull, which is awesome. What's that?
9: His father was called John Bull, which is an awesome name for a horse.
4: Outstanding. Um, Copenhagen's?
6: He's nodding.
9: Yes, sorry, yes, sorry, yes. So I forgot one podcast not I Might I
6: might challenge you on that one at some point, but oh, are we
4: gonna have a, a war horse battle? I love it. They're both diving to Wikipedia now. Holmes, any questions?
5: <laughs> um, no that I mean that was all right. It was sort of he did basically did what was expected of him though, wasn't he? He's the Duke of Wellington's horse. Of course he's gonna be ridden on the Battle of Waterloo for eighteen hours during a day. There's no evidence of fags or booze. We were looking for <laughs> sort of some sort of anthropomorphism going on here, and we didn't really get any of that, really. And then he came back and was given buns and was buried outside a stately home, again, as you would have expected.
6: Holmes is not impressed. Yeah. He had one of his feet cut off as well. Didn't mention that. as well. that was quite a cool story. But...
9: Yeah, so on his funeral, one of these soldiers apparently like kind of went back and cut off one of the hooves. The Duke was outraged, and then like five years later went, actually, that sounds pretty useful, and cut off the other three to make them yeah. into pots.
4: Ink pots.
9: Ink pots. Yeah, he was outraged for a while, and so he went. Actually,
7: it works. some definition of recycling.
4: Yeah, Upcycling. let nothing go to waste. I will never that's get over. Not... Go on. That's,
5: that's like leaving leaving a Christmas present till about nine thirty on Christmas Eve when everything is shut.
4: Yeah. It's what I would just, I'm never going to get over that my first exposure, proper exposure to the Duke okay, that's a lie because I went and looked at his papers in Southampton. But then that exhibition at Eton where there was still food stuck in his false teeth, so he just graces me out if I'm honest, Marcus.
13: <laughs> Which set of false teeth? He had many.
4: <laughs> They're porcelain. I don't know if they were all made out of the same thing, but they looked hefty, man. Like, you, I'm surprised yeah. he could lift his head up.
9: Yeah, someone made out of real teeth
1: and wood. Sprint.
4: Uh, to be
7: honest my my as as much as I love a good story and I do like horses um I'm much with the same with Holmes on this one it's like well, did he actually do anything other than what was expected of him as a horse so I think I might be with this one
4: <laughs> I think in this company Alina's set the bar too high because she gave us an animal that was a complete piss she gave us a po-
9: fat <laughs> Polish soldier <laughs> <laughs>
4: It wasn't even a bear. It wasn't even it. a
9: bear. And Paddington's worry could
4: Oh, uh, Marcus, I feel like they're not on board with you on this. Not on board. Show. No. Let's go to Lucy. Are you going to throw down a challenge over the name of this horse?
6: This is... Well, I'm, I'm going to do a horse, but my horse isn't a war horse. Because, I mean, I could have done a war horse plenty of good ones to choose from but instead um I've gone for a horse whose full name was Beautiful Jim Key and that is his full name. Beautiful is his first name. Jim Key uh is his his last name. And he was the world's smartest horse. So to understand a bit about Jim's story we kind of gotta go back and and look at his mum. So uh his mum was an Arabian mare called Loretta and she was stolen from a sheikh in Persia. Um, and sold uh, to P.T. Barnum, um, who was a, a European circus performer. And she was not only a beautiful, well-bred Arabian mare, she was also very smart. Um, so she did these, she performed in circuses all over Europe, um, but, you know, eventually kind of fell out of fashion. She received fewer and fewer bookings. Um, and she, so she was sold to a travelling circus in, um, in America. She was shipped over to the States um, and she fell on hard times so she was mistreated um and kind of ended up just in these horrible miserable circuses traveling around the states until uh, a bloke called William Key who was a former slave and Tennessee businessman and he was a self-taught veterinarian and he bought Loretta nursed her back to health um, and she became a useful marketing tool for him because he used to travel around selling um this thing called keystone liniment which was uh, something he'd developed to treat um, injured and sick horses and he had Loretta Nurse de Battelle so she was a lovely example and he took her around and um, to help sell his product. Anyway Bill was a bit of an entrepreneur uh, and he knew that a mixture of a, a lovely Arabian horse like Loretta and a nice uh, American standard bred horse would produce probably a real stellar racehorse. So he bred Loretta with a pedigree stallion called um, Tennessee Volunteer. But things didn't go to plan. Unfortunately, Loretta's health deteriorated, leaving her foal um, as an orphan. And this foal, he was a bit of a dud. Um, he was really sickly. He was really frail. He had such bad coordination um, that Bill apparently named him after the local town drunk, a guy called Jim. Um <laughs> And Jim would never set hoof on a racetrack, and um, so you know you've got you 've got Bill key here his, his work is traveling around, but now he 's lumbered with a motherless foal that he has to hand hand rear uh, he becomes super attached to this little foal, and and the little foal Jim becomes really attached to him so um he's, he lives in the house with him right because he has to be fed all the time, so he starts picking up on human behavior. Um, And he learns by watching Bill's dog to fetch sticks, to sit, to roll over. Um, And Jim would follow Bill around everywhere. So, you know, he lived inside the house. He would sleep inside the house. And this continued as Jim got older until they had a fully grown horse living in the house with them. He used to sleep under a blanket at night, uh, not with straw in a stable somewhere. He was part of the family. And it was Bill's wife, Lucinda, who was the first to notice that Jim could understand questions and answer them. And the story goes that she was eating an apple in front of him and said, Jim, do you want a piece of apple? And he nodded his head up and down in response. Uh, And when Bill witnessed this, hold on to your seats here, he began to tutor Jim. And I say tutor, not train. I mean it. He taught him about politics. He taught him Bible passages. Maths and the alphabet. He could do sums. He could answer basic questions. He could spell words. At this point in time, Bill was still traveling about trying to sell his, his keystone liniment. This was his main source of income, right? So he started taking Jim along with him um, and they'd give little impromptu performances as part of Bill's sales pitch. People were amazed and they quickly forgot all about this liniment crap that he was trying to sell and instead they just wanted to see more and more of Jim. Jim, beautiful Jim, the magical small horse. So they took to local fairs and they started wowing the crowds with Jim's talents. 1897, the Tennessee Centennial Expedition. Uh, Jim Key made his first major performance here. Um, Because Bill was a black man, him and Jim were considered nothing but a sideshow. They weren't allowed to perform uh, in the major kind of performance tent. And they were instead assigned to what was known as the Negro Building. But this didn't stop them drawing some of the hugest crowds of the whole event, including President William McKinley. Jim's act included picking the names of prominent politicians um, when requested by audience members, by the way, not by Bill himself, filling mail in the correct post office slots. He had a nice little set with like kind of like pigeonholes behind him. Um, he would produce the correct change from a custom-made cash register like that he could operate with his nose, not his hoof, that would be silly. Um and he could spell words and names. President McKinley was so taken by Jim that he was quoted in the local newspaper as saying, This is certainly the most astonishing and entertaining exhibition I have ever witnessed. So here's where Jim's story becomes even more important. Well, I mean, some people might argue it's not important at all, but they are crazy. Um but at this point in time, a wealthy New York philanthropist, uh chuckled Albert Rogers, he read President McKinley's comments in the paper and he went to see Jim. He was determined to buy this horse. Um, and Bill and Albert struck a deal uh, where Albert would become Jim Key's promoter and owner in the public eye. But in reality, he'd remain Bill Key's horse. Albert arranged for Bill and Jim to appear at venues throughout the East and developed um, even a two act play. So they used to have little, perform a little play together in the theatres. But Albert Rogers was important because his ambition was to, to become a respect, respected in humane circles. He was really passionate about animal welfare. Uh, and what was unique about Bill and Jim was that Jim was trained with completely humane, kind methods, which was very unusual for the time. So um, Albert Rogers appealed to animal protection organisations to sponsor Jim's Act to help raise awareness. It was a challenge to get their support at first because like loads of organisations thought that Jim's Act was a hoax. Um, But they persevered with testimonials from prominent folk of the time, including a group of um, Harvard professors who had studied the act, and the founder even of the Massachusetts SPCA. Um, So Rogers and Bill became like succeeded in gaining sponsorship, basically, from all these animal rights and foundations, and they started the Jim Key Band of Mercy, and this was like a club and charitable organisation facilitated I guess discussions of animal welfare and also promoted kindness to animals they had over a million people join up so at the height of the success, Bill and Jim Key performed um, at the 1904 St Louis World Fair and their act was the most profitable of the entire exposition Um, and so yeah the years were ticking on Jim became arthritic unfortunately they carried on touring um, but by this point, you know, Bill was in his 70s. Uh, Bill Key died in 1909 um, and, and beautiful Jim died three years later, I think, 1912, 1912. So, yeah, they were they were an amazing double act and no one was able to prove that Jim's act was exactly. a mistake. Um, but it's kind of relevant. I mean, even if it was to me, they're still groundbreaking characters in history because they stood for animal welfare and they, they played a crucial role in highlighting animal welfare um, and also Bill Key William Key was a pretty groundbreaking chap in himself you know a former slave uh, an awesome businessman and um, who yeah I mean that's it really the story of a wobbly failed racehorse and former slave that's, that's my epic story
4: done <laughs> it was really good though I love it uh just as like uh, you're getting applause from Lockie over there um although right Bertie's verdict was that he sat there with one ear cocked in the direction of your voice like oh until you mentioned the tutoring and then it was like he went I call bullshit and just turned around, and went. he literally got up, turned around, faced the other way and went to sleep. So I'm not sure, because I, Holmes, I probably should have told you guys this, but there is another bullshitter in the room tonight, because that was fun last week. And uh, I think Bertie's calling bullshit, as was Clive during that. Beth, what do you think? Beth's coughing, she'll come back later. Holmes?
5: I, I really like that. I mean, you know, I thought that's so much better, because... I thought Mar- Marcus, I don't want to go back to Marcus's horse, but that was just a posh horse doing what he's supposed to do. This is a completely <laughs> different kettle of fish, you know. I remember mean, you had me by the time you telling you were telling me he could fetch sticks. I was thinking, wow, that's brilliant. And then he goes on <laughs> much, much further, and then there's a humane side as well, which you've highlighted. I mean, there is one query, which is like, how did he spell?
6: There's a pictures of him online. He basically had behind him in his act, he had. Yeah, know like countdown had all the letters and shit <laughs> yeah. behind him and he had a little stand in front of him and he picked the letters up with his mouth and put them down just demonstrating there how it was done and so he okay. could spell up like, basic words so you'd be like oh what's your name Chris just because it's quite a simple name and um Andrew might be a bit complicated and he he put the four letters up there. So, you know.
5: That's better than I thought. I thought it was going to involve some sort of rubbish hoof tapping, but that's far better than I
6: no, thought. No, that wouldn't that's work. Yeah, so that'd be
4: stupid.
9: <laughs> Horses <laughs> coming over here, taking over Rachel Riley's job. I don't
3: know. Yeah. Marcus
4: <laughs> isn't having it. He's like, my horse went to fucking Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs> Beth, can you speak? Um, oh, just, just about.
7: I am so fed up with this shit. Um... Yeah, I really liked that one. I, I love the idea. I, I always thought that, that horses were quite smart creatures anyway, but I just love that whole story of, you know, it's almost like a true, like triumph with his bad start in life and I, I love it. I, I, how I is really it
4: not a Disney film?
7: You know how I feel about a Disney. Oh, film. you know,
4: that's it was racist. That's why. <laughs> that's what the wokes will tell you anyway uh, right okay let's do one more and then we will break going so on. Can, I, can I ask how did it speak <laughs> Marcus was <is laughs> like no I'm not
6: done yet go on how did it speak <laughs> why, why, why did, why, I didn't say it spoke
9: you said like recited spoke. passages from the bible
6: I said he taught him passages from the bible I never said he recited them <laughs>
9: <laughs> I mean I taught the dining table algorithm but
6: it did hey, tell me that it. <laughs>
1: i Mar- 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 cal- cal- the, the, the horse probably said I would speak, but I'm a bit hoarse today.
4: <laughs> oh, Clyde oh. swooping in with the dad joke.
1: Yes, Clyde. <laughs> uh,
4: yeah, I mean I could argue that I I talk. Bertie the entire life of Monty the other morning when he slept next to me while I recorded <laughs> that documentary, but I doubt, he's, I doubt I could prove that I penetrated his little tiny hazelnut sized brain. Uh, right, okay first of all, Kit Kit is in the room because he heard us talking about War Horses. What time is it in South Korea, Kit? Oh, it's nothing
14: to do, it's War Horses it's uh, It's almost 5am, I just woke up, I thought I'd come down and, and see what you guys are up to and maybe lend an animal or two
9: yeah, Are you in right? a brothel still, Kit?
14: I'm not. I'm in a very nice hotel on the island of Jeju uh, off the the south coast of Korea. It's lovely here. It's a volcano.
4: Kit, you know I'm not going to let this go. Tell everyone in the audience uh, about the giant vulva you walked into the other day. (laughs)
6: Lucy's face. (laughs) The the vulva of doom.
4: (laughs) The vulva Um, of doom, it's called Lucy.
14: So, so, so. Jeju Island is a paradise island. It's the equivalent of Hawaii, and it's got lots of attractions. It's got a teddy bear museum. It's got natural wonders. It's also home to the Jeju Love Land, and that's, of course, the place I visited first. Um It's a park with loads of sculptures of people having very, very naughty sex, um, giant penises, and there is a giant vulva you can walk into. Uh, most of the exhibits are sort of interactive, so you can sort of jump on them and, and you know, <laughs> yeah there's the there's the the hall of upskirting so the, the hall is like a mirrored floor and you're supposed to look down it's, it's it's completely twisted and perverted um every kind of penis imaginable is there um i had a wonderful time
4: <laughs> i don't know if I, marcus's distraught expression lucy laughing ahead of or chris who just looks terrified in the chat right now uh kit entering with a bang as usual we'll come back to you later uh, okay, right, let's do one more and then we'll go for a break. Let's do James.
13: Okay, good, because I had a feeling you would. Um, <laughs> so I have gone with Judy, the uh, also known as Shudi. She was born that in Shanghai. Um, she escaped when she was about three months old, and she got an, into an altercation with some sailors from a Japanese Navy gunboat. Um, And that was when she was found from by her original kennel and taken back. She was then chosen to be the mascot by HMS Nat, a Locust class gunboat of the British Royal Navy. And this was in part because all the other gunboats had mascots and the crew were jealous. So they got their own. She was a purebred pointer. They hoped to train her as a gun dog to protect the shore parties. But her time on the streets of Shanghai, the only time she pointed for anything at that point was for food. So uh, <laughs> didn't do exactly do her job. One of the early times they tried to train her, she fell overboard and they went back for her, and rescued her and basically called it a man overboard exercise. So she was still given a place on the ship the ship's butcher was given the job keeper of the ship's dog. She was trained to stop going from certain areas of the ship, such as the ones by the Chinese cook, as they disliked her. Um, However, uh, by this time, it was also noted that she could tell when things like when aircraft were coming, especially Japanese aircraft, for some reason, and used to alert the crew. This is before the war, but it was good practice. She had to be kept away from a dog on another ship during an exercise because the dog took a fancy to her, but she didn't like it. She also alerted the crew when pirates were about to attack HMS Nat in the darkness, which was easily repelled thanks to Judy. So throughout her stay, they kept her on a trainer as a gun dog, but it just kept being a failure. In 1937, she rescued a crew member on a walk, uh, she kept pulling him ahead and he realized she was pulling him away from a leopard. In November 1937, they had a party with the American river gunboat boat USS Panay. So most of you will know who the Panay is. And this is the real Panay incident because during the party, it seems the Americans stole Judy. And originally they told the Nats that Judy wasn't on board their ship. But the Nat found out from a Chinese trader that she was. So the crew of the Nat decided to do a rescue mission. Although they couldn't rescue Judy at the time, they stole the Panay's ship's bell and basically ordered hostage negotiations. You get your ship's bell back if you give us Judy back. She was returned within the hour knowing, so it seems she was a valued member of the crew in early 1938. Both her and the ship's butcher was sent back to Britain for a rotation. However, when they got back, they realized she fell in she fell in love with a French pointer on another gunship, on another gunboat, sorry. And the two crews decided to hold a wedding ceremony for the two dogs. So the French pointer Paul stayed on there for three days. She felt pregnant, gave birth to 13 puppies, 10 of which survived. And some were given away to the Francis Garnier, which was the French gunboat and also the American gunboat USS Guam. She was also involved in an incident in October of that year when she was confronted by Japanese soldiers who pointed a loaded rifle at her for some reason. One of the soldiers was thrown into the Yangtze by leading seaman Jack Law. And during the following day, several Japanese officers kept coming aboard the Nat. And it was decided that it was better for her to stay on the ship for her safety. In June 39, she was transferred to the HMS Grasshopper with the majority of her crew on the outbreak of war with Germany and eventually redeployed to Singapore. She was originally seasick, but was properly exercised and recovered. By 1942, obviously, the Japanese were attacking and it was decided to evacuate Singapore and the surrounding area. Uh, The grasshopper, along with the dragonfly, was unfortunately sunk as they tried to escape, and they ended up stranded on an island. Thanks to Judy, who helped rescue some of them, after being rescued herself, she also found a fresh water source on the island, and helped guard the camp of survivors from snakes. Eventually, they were picked up by a passing ship, and then marched when the ship could go no further all the way to a, a hopefully a safe area. However, by that time in Sri Lanka, they missed the last evacuation ship by nine days and they are eventually captured by the Japanese. By this point, she was smuggled into the prisoner of war camp where she met, give me a moment, my notes. Where she was basically looked after and she met, I think it's Frank Williams, leading aircraftman, who fed her half of his rations of rice. Eventually they were all, and she kept defending the prisoners from the guards and alligator attack, wild dogs. Uh, eventually they were meant to be transferred to another camp. Now the Japanese guards at this point said the dog would have to stay here. The crew. And the, all the survivors of the crew and the rest of the prisoners found a way to smuggle her on board the, the ship they were on. However, that PAL ship was eventually sunk by a British submarine and Judy helped save a load of them, pushing wood to survivors so they could float. And they were eventually pulled up by a Japanese tanker. The guards found out that the dog was there. They were not happy and they were about to execute her when the commandant of the former prison camp Basically, officially made her a pal and gave her a name because he'd taken a liking to her. So she got official rations and all the rest of it. So then in the next prisoner camp, she helped keep the crew safe, distracting guards again, fighting off alligators and wild dogs and just doing everything to keep morale up in the horrible conditions of Japanese prisoner of war camps. Eventually, the Japanese were going to kill her because of a lice outbreak, which wasn't proven to be from her. But the camp inmates kept her alive long enough for Allied forces to arrive. Afterwards, she was given the Dickens Medal in 1946. And I have here her citation. It read for magnificent courage and endurance in Japanese prison camps, which helped maintain morale among fellow prisoners and also saving many lives through intelligence and watchfulness. She remained with Frank and died on the 17th of February in 1960, buried in Tanzania, where Frank was working at the time. That was Damn. Judy.
4: I'm I'm not going to lie. I'm like the least dog person in history of the world. I know it's going to make Kate cry, but I'm just like... <laughs> Cats are better. Uh, Bertie did not even move, I'm afraid, James. In fact, oh. there was a point when he snored, but that's possible <sighs> because he's eaten too many treats over the last few weeks and he's got a bit of a lockdown belly and needs he's got a diet.
6: Ivy yes. loves it. Yes, we do. He's looking at
4: me like, what is this diet you speak of? <laughs> to be fair, Ivy's loving it as well. Right, Holmes, any questions?
5: Um. Yeah, I mean, it didn't go anywhere for the first two thirds, really. It basically, all you said was that they couldn't train, it just refused to be trained. It fell overboard, and then... Well,
13: they managed to train it, just not as the job for what a pointer's meant to be. And she just got up to a load of excavates.
5: But the only point, the only successful training that you'd said was that she learned not to go near the Chinese kitchen, which isn't that...
13: No, no, there was areas on a ship she couldn't go which she was trained, but she... they. But they found out she could hear aircraft before they could, and she'd alert them, especially Japanese ones.
5: How did she know uh, it was Japanese? Because surely, as a dog, you'll just think it's going to be a big wasp type thing, and any aircraft's going to get your attention.
9: Yeah,
13: no, it's it seems I don't know because of the tone of the Japanese engines or something. But it just Mate, seems maybe the fact they were flying
2: it. around Japan, uh, they were sailing around Japan, gave them the idea that it was a Japanese aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, it probably learned <laughs> aircraft recognition from that horse. <laughs>
7: I, I just imagine it when you said like, oh, could did like alerted them. It's like the um, the dog from you know Up Jug where they've all got the collars on so they can talk, and he just goes, squirrel. I could just imagine this <laughs> dog going plain. <laughs> <laughs>
4: oh.
5: Also, I wasn't <clears throat> I, I wasn't really a fan of the wedding thing as well. That's the type of thing mad old ladies do with their pets. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um,
9: I know, I also, but
13: it was worth mentioning
9: for her. James, did this dog go on a ship and it not sink?
13: No, no. The the grasshopper sank. She was yeah. bombed by Japanese aircraft.
9: Did, did it, like the dog ever step foot on the ship and it not sink?
13: Um, the, NAS, the Nat didn't sink. She was transferred from the Nat, though. So, uh... A, yeah, it was
11: meant to warn people though when Japanese aircraft are incoming. So if it's she, on...
13: she did warn them though, and they were on the anti-aircraft guns. But by that time, it was the evacuation of Singapore. Was the, the, the dog man not managing? The
2: like, Planes there. I'm going on break. <laughs> you, you guys, you guys can deal
13: <laughs> with this. But, done. <laughs> but she also saved the crew. Um, so she also saved the crew when the ship sank as well, and when the Japanese troop ship sank, she helped save crew.
5: How
7: did she keep... save the
13: crew? How
7: did she save them? She pulled them to um, safety. Let me, like, I'll save you. Let me
13: get this up for you because I have it right here. <laughs> she,
7: did she donkey paddle do not keep like, when the,
13: when the PAL ship was torpedoed, they was healed over, and luckily she was by a porthole. They opened the porthole and pushed her through. She ran down the ship's side, and quite a few of us were lucky to get out at that particular time. A lot of people owe their lives to Judy. She was pushing pieces of wood towards people who couldn't swim.
3: It's Over 500
13: of the Pals were killed.
3: She built, was, a <laughs> built a raft. Built a mean, raft.
5: It's a good thing all those people she warned weren't in the Chinese kitchen, because that could have been
13: probably. No, no, that was sorry. That was the, the grasshopper. That was earlier. This. Okay, the, I mean, this, what just what the I just said this dog. Really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it seems she was attacked as a puppy by Japanese soldiers.
4: (laughs) Oh, my God. Did you not listen to the podcast we did with Allegra Jordan about reconciliation and building bridges in warfare? That's not an excuse, Jane.
13: (laughs) I I didn't say it's an excuse. I'm just saying this dog was attacked when it was a puppy, and dogs and cats recognise that.
4: I'm just saying she can't have been that smart then.
13: (laughs) Well, she was, and she got the Dickens medal for all she did, which is the Victoria Cross for Animal it's, Church.
14: It's the, the Dickens medal, James. It's not Dickens. It's got fuck to do with the Christmas Carol.
13: I'm <laughs> Dickens. Oh, there we go. Oh, it's just not my day, is it?
4: <laughs> oh, it was more interesting when I thought it was a medal with Charles Dickens' head on it, just for random. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're
14: not, it's they're got not nothing out. to do with Charles Dickens.
4: <laughs> oh. It was the best
2: of dogs. It was the worst of dogs.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: okay, Beth, oh, yeah, you were long um, dead.
4: If you're not coughing too much, if you got any questions, <laughs> no, <laughs> you've actually killed it, James.
13: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sorry, Beth.
4: Oh dear. <laughs> okay. gave,
9: um, Beth, COVID, and and. Zach. And with
4: laughter at this point. I think we're all going to have to go and compose ourselves. So we're going to go and grab another drink, and then we'll be back with just more of this nonsense, basically. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. So we're just having a catch up before we get started again. We're all, uh, Beth, what did you just say about um, Kit's lifestyle right now? Oh, it's, it's the Kit Chapman version of Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> Basically on the road, aren't you? Do you ever intend to come back to Britain?
14: I, I think I have to at some point. Are they going to kick me out of here? I mean, I mean, I, I run out of like, visa space. No, if just if I can be... get somewhere else, I'll go somewhere else. Zach, exactly. <laughs> I oh, hope you'll your seven yeah. head,
4: haven't you? Oh, yeah, shit.
14: And I'm
9: also going to get my tortoise as well. <laughs> <laughs> zach Efron got a series of him going around the world doing weird shit i'd much prefer to watch you and then just like inject his science It'd be brilliant
14: i i appreciate i mean i was i was down in a, a lava tube yesterday which was good fun oh is is this another, nice is this another they're amazing joke? yeah the lava um, benefits, a vulva. No. <laughs> no 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 um it's a so tunnel so it like i said so this whole place is like a volcano yeah, and I went down this lava tube and there was a, a it's the largest uh, lava column in the world. It's basically just this massive sort of drip that fell down, um, about a, col- about a kilometre underground. It's pretty
8: awesome.
4: Yeah. The one in Iceland was a, was a tunnel forged by an eruption five million years ago and you can go wandering up it. It's great. But not as great as a vulva of doom and I'm disappointed you wouldn't post a picture.
1: <laughs> you
14: don't get the size <laughs> of the, the scale of this vulva that you're walking into. I mean, you don't even realize at the first you're walking into a vulva. We're
9: we still talking about the park. Uh, Are we back on the of course.
4: <laughs> Probably a bit of both. Right, okay. Let's go on. Let's do a true animal lover now. Let's go to Kate because she's been on before and she did she was massively passionate perhaps a little bit too passionate about the husky dog thingy uh, a few (laughs) months ago Kate what have you got for us today
12: um well I hope I'm not going to tread on anyone's toes because I kind of don't know what what's left to come but um I'm just going to go for it so stop me if I if I'm um start talking about something that somebody else has done (laughs) so uh obviously as a horsey girl i had to choose an epic equine um the dog thing was tempting but i've been there done that um however choosing a horse isn't easy you know do you choose a fearless war horse like precephalus or babieca or a racehorse like oldeniti red rum you know they overcame life-threatening injury and disease to triumph against the odds And what about the horses that inspired generations, like Stroller the pony, who flew over fences bigger than he was to win silver at the sixty-eight Olympics, or Vallejo, who danced his way to double gold in London twenty twelve? I almost chose. No, sorry, no
4: on that one. No dancing horses. That just—I'm sorry. I think I speak for all of us when I say that's just a pile of shit.
12: Well, all right. So neither (laughs) of my choices, because I have sort of. got to mention one before okay. i give my choice if that's okay because i almost chose sefton so stop me if anyone else is is doing this one um
4: framing no so far
12: fabulous brave sefton a public hero and a symbol of hope for so many was a household cavalry horse who was critically injured in the ira hyde park bombings in 82 which killed seven of his stablemates and four soldiers Sefton suffered a severed jugular vein, a lacerated eye, and 34 serious wounds over his body. A true professional, he remained completely calm throughout. Thanks to quick action, a record eight-hour surgery, followed by further surgeries and a miracle, he survived. He recovered and he returned to duties with his regiment, often passing the very spot where he received such horrific injuries. However, as epic as that is, he wasn't my final choice. My final choice for the most epic animal is an average looking little chestnut mare sold in October 1952 at Seoul Racetrack by a Korean lad for $250 because he needed the money to buy his sister a wooden leg. She was sold to the U.S. Marine Corps, specifically the recoilless rifle platoon anti-tank company, 5th Marine Regiment. She was trained as a pack horse. They also taught her battlefield survival How not to become entangled in barbed wire, to lie down when under fire and to run for a bunker on hearing the cry incoming. She was one of the first animals to hold a rank in the US military. She was Sergeant Reckless. Nobody's shouting, so I'll continue.
4: Go for it. Yeah, you seem
12: like you're safe. (laughs) She was a really gentle horse and the troops were so fond of her that they let her roam freely through the camp and even go into the tent, sometimes sleeping inside with men. Food couldn't be left unattended though around Reckless. She was known to eat bacon, buttered toast, chocolate bars, candy, shredded wheat, peanut butter sandwiches and mashed potato. But her favourites were scrambled eggs, Coca-Cola and beer. They were advised to limit her to two bottles a day. She didn't just have a taste for unusual food. She once ate her blanket and poker chips worth $30 that belonged to her trainer. Her baptism of fire with the rifles came at a place called Headley's Crotch. When <laughs> Reckless, <laughs> when, when when she heard uh, a, the, one of the rifles fired for the first time, despite being weighed down by six 24 pound rifle shells, she went straight up in the air, all four feet off the ground. She calmed down quickly and just snorted at the second fire. Shortly after which, she was, she was seen chewing a helmet liner. As well as rifle shells, Reckless packed other items to the platoon. She was particularly useful for stringing telephone wire and could string as much as 12 men on foot. Most of her work, though, was on the front lines, only needing to be shown new delivery routes once or twice. She then made the trips on her own, delivering supplies and bringing back the wounded by herself. Her most incredible achievement was at the Battle of Vegas Hill in March 1953, when... Resupplying multiple frontline units and carrying out the wounded, Reckless made 51 solo trips in a single day, covering more than 35 miles on her own to supply a total of 386 recoilless rounds, weighing over 4,200 kilograms. During this battle, which lasted three days, she was wounded twice by shrapnel, but still she kept going. For her accomplishments at Vegas Hill, she was promoted to corporal. Reckless then became the first horse in the Marine Corps to take part in an amphibious landing when the 5th moved from Camp Casey to Inchon. The CO refused to take her on board until the Marines produced the loading plan, approved by him, which specifically listed Reckless and all of her equipment. On April 10th, 1954, Reckless was given a field promotion to sergeant in a formal ceremony. She was also given another red and gold blanket. Reckless left Korea for Japan aboard a transport plane, then sailed to the US from Yokohama. A typhoon delayed the arrival, then the Department of Agriculture insisted on tests before she disembarked, with the understanding that if she had Glanders or Doreen, she would be destroyed. Many of the Marines were incensed at what they considered to be an affront to her honour when they learned that Doreen was an equine STD. The night before she arrived in the US, she once again ate her blanket. A new one with ribbons and insignia was made, and she disembarked just in time to be the guest of honour at the Marine Corps Birthday Ball, where she rode an elevator and ate cake and the flower arrangements. Reckless was treated like a VIP at Camp Pendleton, sorry, and had four falls. and on August 31st, 1959, was promoted again to Staff Sergeant. She was honoured with a 19-gun salute and 1,700-man parade, Reckless retired from active service with full military honours in 1960, having served eight years. For her exemplary service, Reckless was awarded two Purple Hearts, a Marine Corps Good Conduct Medal, a Navy Presidential Unit Citation with Service Star, the National Defence Service Medal, a Korean Service Medal with three bronze unit with three bronze service stars, the United Nations Korea Medal, a Navy Unit Commendation, South Korean Government Service Medal, and a Republic of Korea Presidential Unit Citation, which she would wear these awards on her blanket, plus a French Fourier that the Fifth earned in World War One. In 2016, she was posthumously awarded the Dickin Medal. And in 2019, she became one of the first recipients of the Animals in War and Peace Medal of Bravery.
4: And I think that's pretty epic. That's pretty epic. Not the Dickens medal then.
12: No, no, she got the Dickens medal.
4: Okay, Lisa's not having it. She says classic Americans overdoing it all. <laughs> just think of her way of saying. Well, the award.
6: Mm-hmm.
4: And Kit says he'll only be satisfied if this was a Panto horse. <laughs>
12: She was a Korean horse. Well, she was actually a um, Mongolian and cross thoroughbred. So. Well,
4: James won't like her then. No. <laughs> 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 no I'm joking. No, no I'm no sure the horse from horse. Horse. <laughs> We are joking. James has nothing against anyone <laughs> of any nationality. Uh, right, okay. Beth, any questions? Oh, Bertie's verdict. Um, he did look up. He wasn't as interested as he was in the beginning of the story that Lucy told but he did show an interest. Cool. And he didn't, he didn't do the fuck that, that's bullshit thing that he did halfway through. either.
12: So he didn't turn around and go to sleep there?
4: No, he's still awake. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs>
7: I'm, I'm. I'm not very good at having questions. I'm just enjoying listening to all the stories properly. Cause I'm just ignoring the chat, which sometimes I don't do. And I get sidetracked by it. So I'm just enjoying listening to them all, but I, I like that one as well. Um,
4: Frankly, yeah. I'm glad you're still alive.
7: Well, that's the thing. I think my brain capacity is not probably at full full reach to give questions, but I liked that one. Thanks. Like... Holmes?
5: <laughs> um, no, that was good. I thought you were going to do more on Sefton, actually, which is, um, I met him as a young man many years ago. <laughs> yeah. I, it, I, it wasn't a free choice. My mum and dad made me go and see him. It was quite a while ago. But, yeah.
12: It would have been a free choice for me. I would have wanted to go. It would have been quite a while ago. He died in about... Mm, late 80s, early 90s, I
5: think. But it would have been unique in the whole, whole history of Down the Pub when I would have met one of the, one of the people that one of you and I talked about. Um, but as far as Sergeant Reckless, is gonna, I like that. I like the fact that she eats bacon. I mean, I can just imagine <laughs> Copenhagen being given some foie gras and just lazily pushing it around
4: his plate with a hoof.
12: Foie gras and champagne where Reckless is on uh, bacon and beer. Yes,
4: yeah, she drank, which seems to be a criteria for our judges. I mean,
5: it's, and, it's, very, it's very
12: persuasive. And she had to be tested for an STD, which is, you know, a bit iffy. Well,
5: that was, oh. that was one of my other questions. How did she, did she test positive or negative?
12: No, she was negative. If she'd have been tested positive, they would have destroyed her. Um, yeah, they would have destroyed her because there are diseases that were not present, uh, I assume, are still not present in the US. So any horse entering had to be tested. And if they're positive, they're... They're destroyed immediately. It's but the amazing. Marine's were absolutely furious at the at the suggestion that she would have an STD. They were so protective of her.
5: I bet there was a couple of boats, a couple of blokes on those on that boat shitting themselves, I'm waiting for those test results to come back.
9: <laughs> it reminds me of a couple of stories from uh, blokes in Afghanistan and a certain goats, but that's <laughs> oh, <no.
3: laughs> <laughs> different. Moving on. Go
5: on. One final question: you, you mentioned that she helped laying telephone wire. It's like, how do you do that with hooves?
12: No, well, I think what it was, um, as I understand it, was it was basically on her pack and it was like wound out. So as she walked, they wound it out. Oh, okay. um, so consequently, she was able to, to, it was able to be done much, much quicker because I suppose they could do more. I I'm not entirely sure exactly how it worked.
5: So she was doing a, a sort of average horsey thing rather than a specialist skill type.
12: Well, the laying of the telephone wires, I suppose, was fairly average. But I think the fact that mm-hmm. she learnt the supply routes after being shown them once or twice and then went by herself to the front line under fire um, to deliver supplies and, and take out the wounded again by herself, I think that's quite uh, a quite impressive thing for her to learn to do and want to do.
5: Yeah,
12: definitely. because run off. I would have probably.
4: That's pretty good. But Lucy says, could she spell bacon?
12: <laughs>
6: <laughs> I don't think so. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm not just a little to me. Couldn't spell, couldn't count. So. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck that, you, is, Reckless. But <laughs> could Jim Key
12: um, stand rifle fire and and find his way on his own
4: or would he get lost? Can he read a map? He'd ask for directions.
6: <laughs> wow, that's conjecture. I'm not getting involved in that.
9: <laughs> don't give any points about his horses anyway. who, t- who did their job. Yeah.
6: <laughs> bit yeah
12: military veteran <laughs> trumps circus performer every <clears throat> other week.
6: It's a bit boring though, isn't it, war horses? You know, like, it's a bit, you know that's what they do. Horses in war, that's their job. Give me a counting spelling horse any day of the week.
9: Who learned <laughs> physics from a book but just couldn't tell you back?
6: And politics. <laughs> he knew it all. He knew it all. It sounds <laughs> like he was more qualified
4: to be president than Trump is. I
6: think Reckless was as well, wasn't
4: he? I'm pretty sure the goat marks just mentioned. I think he was James well, but was, to be honest. But... Okay, right. Let's go with... Let's see what Clive has to offer
1: this week. I'm sorry to disappoint Dr. Kitt, who seems to believe that all my propositions are, and I quote, British and shit. While this may be shit, it's decidedly not British. (laughs) I'm also very sorry to disappoint Holmes. This contains no reference to the First World War. But on the plus side, nor to any German submarines. It is, however, the story (laughs) of a hound whose epic and selfless devotion changed the course of history and whose influence is still with us today some 500 years later. I am, of course, speaking of Manresa, the dog who saved the life of his master, Ignatius Loyola, the founder of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. No Manresa, no Loyola, no Jesuits. Ilegal López de Onas y Loyola was born the son of a minor Basque nobleman in 1491. As a boy, he served as a page-per-relative, the treasurer of the kingdom of Castile. He spent his days reading about El Cid, Camelot, and chivalric adventures before becoming a soldier when he turned 17. He was described as, a bit like James's, a fancy dresser, an expert dancer, a womaniser, sensitive to insults and a rough punkish swordsman who used his privileged status to escape prosecution for violent crimes committed with his priest brother at carnival time. A right charmer of the old school could well be the chairman of the F.A. or a Tory cabinet minister of a today. From 1509 to 1521, he served Antonio Manrique de Lara, second duke of Nahara, and fought under him in various campaigns, including the pacification of Navarre. The pacification did not, however, pacify the dear people of Navarre. In fact, it made them a little pissed off, and they got together with their French chums from across the border and expressed their dissatisfaction. On 20th of May 1521, Inigo helped Spanish forces defend Pamplona, the city now famous for its bull runs where American tourists dress up in white to get gouged by irate bovines. The French and the Navarrese attacked Pamplona. The defence wasn't a success, and Inigo was wounded when a cannonball smashed his right leg. But such was his courage that the victorious Navarrese, instead of doing all sorts of unpleasant things to him, carried the young Basque all the way home to Loyola. There his leg was operated on, and he was bed-bound. His sister-in-law, Magdalena de arros gave him two books to read. One was the lives of the saints and another was stories from the life of Christ. Hardly the daring do of nightly t- tales that was his preferred reading in his youth. He lay in his bed with little for company other than his books and his dog Manresa. Not much is known about Manresa, but from depictions of him, he appears to have been a whippet or a greyhound, possibly a lurcher. For present purposes, let's say a lurcher. Illigo read and sought to recover. But wounds and surgeries in those days were dangerous things. He drifted into a fever, as infection took hold. He had fever dreams. Rather in the same way that COVID fever dreams might today take a certain shape, the patient has been browsing Pornhub solidly for days. His dreams, fueled by stories of saints and Christ, manifest themselves in spiritual visions. He was in danger of death through sepsis, and still Manresa had patiently kept him company. One night, when Inigo was in the depths of torment and his fever reached its peak, Magdalena de Arros came to visit him in his room, concerned for his life. She was met by the sight of the faithful faithful Manresa, gently licking the wounded and infected leg of our hero. She stood quietly and watched, no doubt inwardly retching, as the salivating dog got its tongue to work on the pus and decaying flesh. Manresa continued with his work, sniffing gently as he licked. As dawn rose and bells rang matins, the fever had lifted and recovery began. The dog had saved his master. While some believed that the healing was a miracle, more skeptical souls think it might have had something to do with the dog cleansing the wound. Whatever the reason, Inigo survived, although he always walked with a limb. Suffice to say, from that day forward, dog and master were never apart. Inigo, who Latinized his name to Ignatius, drew from his visions and contemplation and went on a pilgrimage. He set off to travel to the Holy Land, but ended up with his dog, no doubt on a string, living on the streets of a Catalan town. Eventually, after a year of poverty and further reflection, he did make it to Jerusalem, but was sent back within days by the Franciscans, who, despite their founder Francis of Assisi's reputation as a lover of all God's creatures, drew the lines to Basque Lurcher. He returned to Europe, took holy orders, found his way to Paris, and in 1539 founded the Jesuits, possibly the most significant religious order founded after the Reformation. The Jesuits led the Catholic Reformation, as well as being central to the Counter-Reformation. Their intellectual zeal showed a way forward for the Church to counter the intellectualism of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and other reformers. The Jesuits have stayed at the fore despite suppression and opposition. While the term Jesuitical may unkindly have negative connotations, it was Jesuits who had opened up Japan, fought colonial barbarity in Paraguay, who led the mission to England. Noted Jesuit alumni include James Joyce, Fidel Castro, the Marquis de Sade and me. Last but not least, the present Pope, Francis, is a Jesuit. And what a man raiser. Although Loyola is always pictured with a hound at his feet, it would be ridiculous to consider he somehow survived throughout Ignatius' life. Some do believe that he somehow miraculously lived to an Old Testament-like age and dog years, but it is likely that he was either replaced or simply that the impact of his deed was such that it was preserved forever by artists. Today, Jesuit centres in Birmingham, Dublin, Malta and many other places around the world, from the Philippines to the US, are called Manraiser House in the Dogs Honour razor was an epic animal whose influence has lasted longer than his supposed miraculous lifespan.
5: It's an interesting tactic when you're making a case about animals to only include the animal in about 2% of your case. (laughs) So we we basically know that he was was called Manraiser.
1: The the whole story, the turning point, was all the fulcrums, the animal. That's the whole essence of it.
5: Yeah, I mean, my, my cat sits next to me all day when I work at this table. And basically, he doesn't do that out of loyalty. He does that because he thinks I'm going to get up and feed him any minute. I've got a feeling this might be going on here as well.
1: But does your, does your cat lick things that you need to have licked?
5: Well, <laughs>
6: <it's a> personal <laughs> question.
5: I could talk to you about that offline, but, um. <laughs>
6: <laughs>
5: what is this, and where can
9: we buy one for Zach?
4: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I fear that Beth is now laughing so much she's talking too much to participate. Beth,
7: um, yeah, um, I'm I'm gonna keep keep my opinions to myself on this one.
4: Actually, you're not a dog person at all, are you? I feel like. Considering how is uh, Holmes is a crazy cat man and um, Beth nearly got eaten by a dog, um, I fear that anyone who's arguing a dog tonight is uh, heading for Uh And Charlie's shoulders just sank at that. Are you going to argue for a dog, Charlie? Yes. Okay, but it might be a really awesome dog, and you might
3: overcome. I think I yeah, I'm I'm going to turn you. Yeah, definitely. Okay, <laughs> go for it. Out which way, Charlie? to be dog lovers okay right so you my go yes right okay so i'm gonna drag you kicking and screaming back into the 17th century because you know that's where i hang out and we're going to go to the civil war um where the uh dashing cavaliers are fighting off the evil roundheads and i'm not even gonna go with any balance in this Prince Rupert of the Rhine was the quintessential cavalier. He was young, he was dashing, devilishly handsome. He was reckless. He was six foot four with good hair. And he came to England in 1642 at the age of 22 to serve the uncle who'd supported his family's claim to the throne of Bohemia some 20 years earlier, the claiming of which had seen the winter king and queen flee in such haste that they very nearly left the baby Rupert behind. And that's a true story. Ouch. I know, harsh. Rupert stood with his uncle, King Charles I, as he raised his standard against the Roundhead Rebels yeah. in Nottingham on the 22nd of August, 1642. But he didn't arrive in England alone. He brought with him his younger brother, Prince Maurice, and a white standard poodle called Boy. He'd been given Boy as a gift from the English ambassador in Vienna when he'd been a prisoner of war, and Boy had been his constant companion ever since. When Rupert led the Royalist wing of 800 horse cavalry and dragoons at Edgehill that October, Boy was with him. Boy became something of a lucky mascot to the Royalist troops. He was sweet and good-natured and a breed unfamiliar to the English. A retrieving dog, Boy would have been intelligent and quick to master commands. He was said to jump in the air at the word Charles and to cock his leg at the word "Pim," Being possessed of the ability to make himself invisible, to penetrate enemy lines and bring back information. Good boy. So famous was Boy as a talisman of Prince Rupert and his troops that roundhead propaganda seized on his image as something sinister. Pamphlets suggested everything from boy being Rupert's familiar, so that's a devil in animal form, to the dog being the offspring child of Rupert and a witch. The pamphleteers helpfully suggested in rhyme, 'Twas like a dog, yet there was none did know, whether it devil was or dog or no. Helpful stuff. Boy would have been at his master's side or not far from it when he stormed Bristol in July, 1643. And he would have provided excellent fluffy comfort as it became clear that the war was going to be a long slog. Now I'm no military historian and no sooner do I learn the progress of the civil wars than I forget them. But they had a big problem at the time with fighting men being very reluctant to move too far from their home counties. And the Royalist armies were kind of disjointed, which is going to be a problem. In the summer of 1644, Rupert's army marched from Shrewsbury to his uncle's on his uncle's orders to relieve York, which was being besieged. And en route, there were skirmishes until the Cavalier and Roundhead armies met at Marston Moor on the 2nd of July, 1644. Neither side wanted to move first, because that would mean going uphill. So nothing really got going until the evening, by which time it was raining. The first two major battles of the war, Edgehill and Newbury, had essentially been draws. But because of Parliament's solemn league and covenant with the Scottish Covenanters, they'd kind of secured 21,000 men in exchange for religious unification, got Scotland now for Parliament, and there's going to be a problem. So here are the numbers. You've got Fairfax, Manchester and Cromwell's men bolstered by Scottish Covenanter regiments, Totalling between an estimated 24 and 28,000 men. Of that, Royal um, Roundhead losses were recorded at around 300. On the other side, Prince Rupert, Newcastle, Byron and Goring together had only about 18,000 men. Marston Moore closed the Northern Theatre of War in the First Civil Wars. This was done. Between an estimated three and a half thousand and five thousand royalists were killed with another fifteen hundred taken prisoner along with all their heavy guns, all their weapons and several standards, which is always annoying and very embarrassing. That loss aside, Boy, who had been safely tied up in the royalist camp, slipped his leash and ran into the confusion and noise of the battle to find his master. The pamphleteers gloated. Lament, poor cavaliers, cry, howl and yelp for the loss of your malignant whelp. He's dead, he's dead. No more alas, can he. Protect your dames or get victory. Prince Rupert just about got away from the battlefield alive. He had to ditch his horse and jump over a fence into a field of beans to escape. He made his way to York alone, without boy. And the pamphleteers wrote, How sad that son of blood did look to hear one tell the death of this shagged cavalier. How raved he and tore his periwig and swore against the roundheads that he'd ne'er fight more. Some say Rupert killed a few stray roundheads who happened to cross his path as he went because he was in no mood. In roundhead propaganda, Roy... Boy is always depicted as a black dog, which proves as much as it need be proven that they did not know Boy. They had probably never seen him, having unlikely been in the royalist camp. Boy was no hound from hell. He was a constant companion, a comforting and clever presence in the camp. And he was the goodest boy.
4: I love him. Do you know what? Bertie was rapt at that <laughs> story. He actually sat and watched you tell that story. Oh Bertie. Bertie.
3: Dog. Yeah. He's a good boy.
4: <laughs> he has got a favourite. You know, he knows you gave me cake. He's like, You make my mama cake, I'll be your friend. Right, I've okay. Got
3: dreamies too, Bertie. Bertie, you want dreamies? <laughs>
4: <laughs> not that you're trying to blackmail him in the slime. Oh, I'm I'm, worked. Not, I'm not above that. He's fully awake now and staring at you as saying, Well, come <laughs> on then. Drive them over here. There's a lockdown, Bertie. Soon, soon. Oh, man. Anyway, <laughs> Bertie's gold. <laughs> Are you, Holmes?
5: I was I was initially drawn to him, basically because he was given, he was a pet that was given by the British ambassador, which my cat, my cat came from the British ambassador from Georgia about 12 oh. years ago.
3: Maybe they knew um, each other.
5: Maybe, maybe. But <laughs> apart from, he, he didn't seem to do anything entirely unexpected. He did sort of loyal dog type things.
3: He was a good boy.
5: But, um, yeah. I mean, I mean if he made thing.
4: it through life without Charles II trying to hump him, there's an achievement there, <laughs> isn't it? Well,
5: there is, and there's there's all the the pamphlets that you mentioned, all the propaganda. But obviously, he wouldn't have been aware of that, would he? Really? I I
3: that think he ignored true. he ignored the press. He just thought, you know, fake news. Not, like um, he didn't lower himself to that level.
9: Hold on! I if you me can me teach me. A, if you can teach a horse the Bible, you can teach a dog pamphlets. <laughs> Let's not write <light> this off. <laughs>
1: At home, she's not
2: been paying attention. Yeah, where where did he stand on the issue of transubstantiation and, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. and the issue of a common prayer book across uh, across the country?
4: Okay, right, Beth. Anything to say? I know it's a dog, but I was quite moved by that. Um, yeah, Michael no, no. spaniel. I, I, you know, it was he was a good boy. Was he a
7: great boy? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Everything I say sounds ridiculous, doesn't
2: it? Don't worry about your accent.
4: (laughs) Oh, Which brings me to, for bonus points, we're going to go round the room. And whoever does, the best Irish accent (laughs) in honour of Dorman's absence tonight. Because he just couldn't bear what he listened to on that trailer. I'm going to go lucky first because I'm pretty sure he's going to end up Welsh by the end of it. Potato! <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> potato.
2: Will you have a cup of tea now, Father? <laughs> How you will? How you will? Uh, You're a racist exactly now, Father. That.
4: <laughs> that was better than Emily Blunt. Kit, give us an <laughs> Irish accent. That was,
14: that was my Irish accent.
4: That's just Um, your formal accent. Oh, so I hear you're racist now, Father. I love this. Basically, everyone is going to quote Father Ted. Excellent, James.
3: Uh Aha, I hear you're
13: racist now, Father.
4: I love the way the fact that you go up four octaves when you do an Irish accent. That's really great. Kate, Chris.
8: You don't seem to have any of the alloyed stuff down
11: here, Father. It all seems to be rather German. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> that was quite convincing, actually, Marcus.
11: So, dude, these are very small,
9: <laughs> and they are far away.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was up there with Tom Cruise, that one, Zach. This is going to be brilliant.
11: See, I haven't seen Father Ted, so instantly I'm on minus points.
4: You Just well, say anything in an Irish accent.
11: I'm pretty sure nobody wants to hear my Irish accent.
4: I said, do you know what? This is hilariously, hilariously, um, they're all better than the ones on this trailer so far, even though they're terrible, Charlie.
9: They're still better than Dorman's,
3: <laughs> um, Charlie. That would be an ecumenical matter. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, that was good, Clive O'Connell. If you fuck this up,
1: <laughs> I wish you have to go with cream potatoes and gravy.
4: <laughs> Holmes, I hear every a racist accent racist. Holmes does comes out like Sean Bean. Go on.
5: Uh, no, I'm going to try a different one now. Oh, oh, yeah. oh yeah, I hear you're a racist now, Father. Not he won't. <laughs> <laughs> Bastard. Bastard. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Beth.
7: Oh, do I have to? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, man. All right, okay. No, no, no. That money was just resting in my account. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Brilliant. We will, I'm going to make Dorman listen to this and judge. Let's go to... Let's see. I'm guessing Kit is going to have some epic... Science animal. I
14: am. I'm going to have an epic science animal. All right. You ready?
4: Go on. Go. Okay. So as regular listeners
14: know, I am a science historian. There are loads of animals I could have chosen, but I have gone for some animals that went into space. Um, I will get to my choice in a moment, but let's just set up the menagerie of creatures that have gone up there. And for all kinds of reasons, air composition, radiation exposure, all that kind of stuff flies have gone up mice frogs hamsters goldfish cats dogs and squirrels have all been used in space programs but we really kick off with the us ussr space race and the first animal to orbit the earth was of course laika but laika wasn't a particularly special dog in 1957 the russians basically found a stray mongrel roaming the streets of moscow and hauled it away for mother russia's space program they gave it a host of different names including curly little lemon and little bug but eventually they settled on Laika, which just means Barker. Um, and it was a suicide mission. The Russians had absolutely no way of getting Laika back to Earth alive. She blasted off, orbited the Earth, eating her food, but in an uncomfortable 40-degree heat. And on the fourth orbit, she died of overheating. Essentially the reason you always crack a window open for a a, car, a dog in a car. Um, Laika was disintegrated when the spacecraft fell to Earth five months later. She had an incredibly tragic life. The U.S. also used animals, uh, although they only achieved orbit after the Soviets had already sent two men into space. Uh, This was Enos the Chimp, whose mission was to see if you could do simple tasks performed in space. After 1,250 hours of training, mostly teaching him to pull a lever in the hope of avoiding an electric shock, Enos was sent up in 1961. He was supposed to orbit the Earth three times, but the test malfunctioned and started repeatedly electrocuting him. After being shocked 76 times, NASA thought they would have bought the mission and returned the chimp to Earth. Enos died shortly after of dysentery. Now, Leica and Enos would have been worthy winners, but my picks are even better. It is the Zond 5 tortoises. By the late 1960s, it was clear that the Americans were winning the space race. But true to Soviet fashion, the USSR space program guys didn't want to lose their jobs and so they decided to launch essentially a PR stunt. This was Zond 5, and the craft was to orbit around the moon. As part of the payload, they put some animals in there too, mainly to check if they would survive the Van Allen Belt, a radioactive area beyond Earth. The animals were a pair of Russian horse field tortoises, which can survive being immobilised without food or water for months. They are also very small and very light, and these factors make them perfect for spaceflight. So the Russians strapped in a pair of tortoises in, into the spacecraft. As the Russians didn't name them, I'm going to call them Alex and Alina. And they put them along with some worms, fruit flies, and a mannequin of a cosmonaut. Because, you know, why not? For 12 days, Alex and Alina were left in the shuttle, restrained and, shut, and starved of water and food. Um, sorry, the pod, not the shuttle. Uh, so scientists had a baseline for their vitals. Then, on the 14th of September 1968, the duo set off on a a six-and-a-half-day mission to the moon. There was a slingshot around it and returned to Earth. To get out of Earth's gravity, they hit Mark 33, about 25,000 miles per hour, which made them the fastest tortoises in history. Now, Alex and Alina only care about two things, eating and humping. But, unable to eat you can kind of guess what was on their mind, stuck facing each other as they blasted off into space on what must have felt like a vibrating mattress. (laughs) And as anyone who has ever experimented with fruit flies or worms knows, these critters breed constantly, meaning that Zond 5 was pretty much a rocket-powered interplanetary space orgy. Now, the mission was a complete success. Alex and Alina orbited around the dark side of the moon, then shot back to Earth as no humans were on board, the Russians didn't really stick the landing. And so the tortoises were hit by 20 G as they landed, something humans can only stand for about 10 seconds before dying. But the craft splashed down safely in the Indian ocean. And four days later, the Russians finally turned up and retrieved it. Both Alex and Lena had survived with absolutely no ill effects other than losing about 10% of their body weight due to not eating and a full week of zero G tortoise wanking. In doing so, they became the first Earthlings to orbit the moon, beating Apollo 8 by a full two months. The reward for these heroes of the Soviet Union was dissection. Their autopsies showed that they were in good health and demonstrated that manned moon flight was safe and possible. But there's an even greater claim to fame for these two heroes. Not only were Alex and Alina the first Earthlings to orbit the moon, they also went just a little bit further out in orbit than the only other craft who has had to make a slingshot which is Apollo 13. And so, to date, the earthlings who have gone furthest away from our planet are tortoises Alex and Alina, making them the greatest explorers in history who were probably masturbating at the time.
4: Outstanding. And yes, only on History Hack would you hear the phrase zero-G tortoise wanking. Because that's (laughs) how we like to roll. (laughs) Brilliant. I, I love it. I love that I actually I love that I'm named after the wanking tortoise, or it's named after me, or whatever. Holmes, <laughs> have how you got tortoise it- envy?
5: Now, how long were they in space for, Kit?
14: Uh, six and a half days. Uh, okay. The the entire mission uh, was I, th- I think it was um, yeah I think it was six. The entire mission was just over ten days, so they were they were actually in the Indian Ocean for four days. So I think it was six and a half days the trip around.
5: Is that enough time for a tortoise to finish
2: pleasuring himself? Um, no.
14: <laughs> well, uh, well, as, as as some listeners may know, I do actually have a tortoise, and um, and and getting <laughs> satisfaction um, happens relatively slowly, but they but they, they they can achieve it within within a certain time frame. And yes, I imagine they had several
4: sessions. But yeah, you they... say that I played uh, football with a giant tortoise in the Seychelles, and I imagine it's what it's like playing football with Phil Jagielka. <laughs> <laughs> took him about an hour and a half to get to the ball, and then it kind of punted it four inches. Holmes, anything else?
5: Were they, how were they strapped in? Were they in boxes or something?
14: Um, no, so, so they, were, they were actually sort of... Um, uh, there's a good example of it in the, the Air and Space Museum uh, in, uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, the Americans sent up a, um, a monkey into space, Abel. Um, it didn't achieve orbit, but this was uh, in the 1950s. And the, the monkey, uh, Abel, had an electric a probe essentially in, in his body and he died removing it they became infected um and so they stuffed him and shoved him in the uh, the National Air and Space Museum and you can see this sort of encasement that the monkey was in he had one hand free he had his face free and then there's a sort of uh, a metal sort of purpose built um sort of almost like a body cast that the monkey was in the Russians
5: used something very very similar for the tortoises I mean, if only they had a 15th-century religious Spanish dog to lick that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Clive is nodding with complete seriousness. Beth, any questions about the wanking tortoises?
7: Ah, uh, no, no questions. But you know, Kit just absolutely always brings his A-game with these kind of with these yeah. kind. Of, um, um,
4: I defy anyone to still say science is boring after six months of Kit on History Hack.
7: Yeah. I mean, I could bring up Marcus's question that he's kindly put in the chat saying, Am I the only one trying to figure out how a turtle, how a turtle would wank with really small hands?
14: <laughs> um, it again, again, rub I, I, it... I unfortunately I have first hand experience of this. They kind of just rock back and forth and they and they allow the friction to do the work.
1: Um... <laughs> <laughs>
4: You asked.
14: (laughs) You want to know how a tortoise has a wank? That's how a tortoise has a wank.
4: No, uh, I don't know, do you know one of my favourite all time moments? We used to have a cat called Vader and my brother picked him up one day and he'd been doing the whole rubbing friction thing and just as my brother picked him up, uh, shall we say a certain something came squaring out across and hit my brother on the shoulder, uh, missed his face by millimetres. I swear to God, <laughs> the cat went eight feet in the air and I've met my brother was at the time fat and lazy and I've never seen anyone get to the top of the stairs get naked and get in the showers all my life Oh, I loved that cat after that I fucking love that cat right okay Holmes you got any more burning questions about how tortoises get off or are you done?
1: No I'm
5: done I've been waiting for years for those answers so I can sleep a happy man tonight
4: <laughs> Marcus is about to hit send on the Google search hairy bear man which... no
9: don't 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 do
4: that <laughs> no do do just for
9: context i was like yeah i'm a bear i just want to hibernate and kits just like takes this into a whole level of <sighs> just kits basically <laughs> just... if you see any you pictures of me to scroll down
4: on. to a level of oh, beth's having a hot flush after all this time. well
9: beth couldn't undo her onesie more if she tried
3: of for, the, for
14: those who don't know, in in, <laughs> in, in in gay in gay slang, a bear is it's kind of like Prince Rupert, a big hairy guy who likes boys. Yeah. Um.
4: One of my gay friends is obsessed with bears. He loves them.
3: The yeah.
4: No, as in as in uh, no, he is, he is a gay man and he loves bears. That's his thing. It is it's genuinely a thing, isn't it, Kit? You're
9: ruining Paddington.
14: Yeah, it's a large homosexual hairy man.
4: Yeah, and um, it, like so much the better with my friend if they've got hair on their backs and everything. He loves it. Is that why it's Rupert the Bat? I don't know, but <laughs> Charlie's waving a picture of. Bruce I him. I
3: don't think Rupert would would count as a bear. I think he's far he's far too. I think he's far too effeminate. I always think he like he could be a beard. proper, manly, hairy man. Yeah.
4: Anyway, Marcus has learned something tonight. Let's move on to Zach. Who have you stolen from today, Zach?
11: <laughs> You're going to be disappointed. I was going to steal Wojtek from Alina, but then she basically started crying when I suggested that I was going to steal it from her. So I, I decided to do the right thing and, and to keep Wojtek. Um, when it comes to history's greatest animal, quite frankly, you can keep your bears, your jizzing tortoises and horses with PhDs. It was inevitable despite Beth's prejudice, uh, that there could only be one type of animal which could win, and that is man's best friend, the dog. And when it comes to the greatest dogs, it can't just be lovable, loyal and laughable. It needs to have saved lives, lifted spirits in times of extreme need or changed the world for the better. And Smokey the Yorkie did all three of those things. Very little is known.
4: Sorry, I'm just like, but did he get drunk is what the judges want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Go on, Zach, go on. You Not
11: as such. This is about the only thing, apart from marrying, being forced into some kind of arranged marriage with a French person that that isn't um, in Smokey's life. But very little, having said that, very little is known about Smokey's early life. At the time, Yorkshire Terriers were actually quite an obscure breed, unlike now. And Smokey is actually credited with the revival of interest in the hardy canines hailing from northern England. She was initially found in an abandoned foxhole in Papua New Guinea by an American soldier in February 1944. It was initially thought that she might have been owned by a Japanese soldier, but they found that she didn't actually understand Japanese or English. Smokey led an adventurous life backpacking through the jungle with the platoon that found her before being sold to... An American military photographer, William Wynne, for $6 so that her owner could buy back into a card game. Smokey was not an official war dog, and so had to live off Wynne's rations, not like Wojtek, which had its own ration book and tent malarkey going on, but it was actually hardier, uh, Smokey this is, was actually hardier than her canine comrades, as it was found that her paws did not wear out on the coral, unlike other dogs, but then, she has northern ancestry, so she was bound to be tough as nails. <laughs> Smokey's duties, besides barking at the enemy, included entertaining the soldiers with tricks that Wynne had taught her. She actually learned so many that she knew more than any other dog act of her day. And she became the world's first example of a therapy dog, entertaining special service in special service hospitals across the Pacific. However, Smokey's importance does not solely lie in the fact that she became an icon though she was champion mascot in the southwest pacific or for the fact that she started the phenomenon of using animals to help treat patients this yorkie also saved lives and actively contributed to the american war effort she actually warned win of incoming shells and i'm not talking in some kind of airy fairy oh look there's a plane over there quick everybody get out of the way kind of scenario she saved win from an incoming shell um when he was on board a light transport ship dragging him, well, tugging at his um, trouser leg, to get him out of the way. Um, and that same shell burst actually killed eight men who were standing near Wynn at the time. She also went out on sorties with him when he was on airborne reconnaissance and even had her own parachute and allegedly even had to use that parachute, but I'm not entirely sure whether that's just a load of crap. Possibly her most significant act, though, was as an engineer on an American airbase on Luzon Island. When soil had sifted into a pipe that was used for telegraph communications on the airbase, Smokey was used to dig her way through, dragging a cable along behind her. Her work saved around 250 ground crew from having to move a squadron of aircraft whilst engineers dug up the taxiway to relay the pipe. After the war, having gained fame thanks to the courage of her exploits, in the magazine Yank Down Under, she had a successful TV career, appearing on 42 live shows without ever repeating a trick. So there is still hope for Donald Trump there. She died in February 1957, aged around 14, and has seven memorials around the world dedicated to her. So there you have it. A dog that will simultaneously an early warning system against incoming shells, an engineer, the doggy equivalent of Florence Nightingale, the canine version of Dame Vera Lynn, and by renewing the interest in her breed, was also the David Attenborough of the dog world. It is said that the North remembers, but there could be no doubt that we should remember this Northerner as the greatest animal in history.
4: That's pretty epic. Um, I like that one for a dog. I don't mind Yorkies, um, so because they're little and they don't try and eat me. Holmes, what do you think?
5: It was all right. I mean, it was sort of... <laughs> was lacking the beer and the fags element. It was
4: quite
2: similar <laughs> to James's. I did earlier.
4: fear that it was entirely too honourable from the very beginning and yeah. lacked the the like smutty party animal yeah. vibe.
5: I mean, it, it, by the sounds of it, it, could, it didn't even know that it wasn't to go into a Chinese kitchen either. So, you know, um, I think that this the statement, it knew more dogs than any dog of its time, whatever it was, is quite <laughs> a big statement.
4: Zach's face is like, bring it.
11: Sorry, I didn't
5: catch that, Hums. You said it knew more tricks than any dog of its day. That's quite a big statement.
11: Well, it never repeated a trick in 42 TV appearances, which is quite impressive. Bearing in mind, you know, Yorkie's only lived to be, what, 14. (laughs) So that's a lot of training and Yorkies are very hard to train at the best of times. So it makes this particular dog more intelligent than most of its counterparts.
2: Is that like someone with Alzheimer's who never repeats the same story or joke? <laughs>
5: hey, what?
2: <laughs> and i hey, am
5: never, never entirely convinced about these early warning systems and that dogs are phenomenally greedy. You I'm sure they're just saying, come on, feeding time, feeding time, just at the time a shell happens to come in or something like that. <laughs>
9: You don't mean that we spent millions of, like, pounds and years on radar. We could have just got some pointers, just point up the uh, White Cliffs <laughs> of Dover, like, barking at the sky. <laughs> that would have made the Battle of Britain better, Hayhurst.
4: Hey? I, like, I do think every time you two, including Lockie with his little uh, who – who is doing the weight? what? Woolly, Woolly Robertson. Every time yeah. you do that, you need to pay James royalties, because that's his catchphrase.
2: Is it? Yeah. Woolly Robertson's uh, catchphrase now.
4: You've stolen it for Willie Robertson. I, I love the effort that goes into those little pictures. Beth, anything on the Yorkie? I mean, I know
7: we know how I feel about dogs, but I loved that one. It's a small, scrappy northerner, and compared to the rest of you, that is a perfect description for me. So I, I love it. I think... uh
2: But so you admit your northerness.
7: Well, I'm more northern than you.
2: <laughs>
7: <laughs> I am more northern than the rest of you maybe not Janks, but um yeah I, I'm, I'm in I'm yorkshire a- <laughs>
4: are you
5: <laughs> my family's all from yorkshire yeah i mean I grew up yeah, in i'm South technically Island, more but... than you slightly as well i think but there we go we'll let that we'll let that hang
4: holmes actually got told off for the song program that we did by his wife because she said he'd gone full northern in it didn't she
5: i did i must have inadvertently did the whole thing in sean bean without realizing it apparently
7: <laughs> well if we it. if we're talking <laughs> about small and scrappy that's definitely more like me. Um so I I yeah I love it there's so much so much in that story as you say for a little yorkie. Um yeah maybe
4: missing you know some booze and
7: and drugs but
4: I love it. It's a very good story. Have been a caveat at the beginning that the 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 uh, more badly behaved and rock and roll the animal was the more points it was going to get off the judges but really you should have known.
11: Do I get points for having converted Beth to dogs, though?
4: Some points, yeah, definitely. But I still feel we have the best one coming. And God love him, he wasn't even going to do this one, and I begged him, because Chris does work at the Imperial War Museum, but it means he gets to hang out with what's left of this animal every day he goes to work. Tell us who it is, Chris. Uh,
8: I am going to be doing the highest uh, awarded pig within the German Navy, Tirpitz.
4: This is epic. No. You have to... Don't just think of a shitty little farm pig. It, the scale of this pig, I mean, it's it's massive, isn't it?
8: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's about the size of my smallest son. Yeah. Mostly, Are you still serving
4: it of... in a canteen after all these years? <laughs> no, his head <laughs> is mounted on a wall thing, and, like, they preserved him after... Well, Chris is going to tell you, but that's his head at <laughs> the Imperial War Museum. But go ahead, Chris. Okay,
8: Um. well couldn't tell you exactly when Turpitz was put aboard the uh, light cruiser Dresden um I have a feeling that if I start talking at length about boats I'm going to lose everybody so just just briefly um at the beginning of the first world war there were uh several German cruisers scattered around that basically ended up acting independently um basically pirates um trying to stop allied shipping and uh the Dresden uh was one of the least uh successful ones unfortunately under uh Captain Zussi Ludeck, it uh, sailed from the Caribbean south, uh, only managed to stop two ships in about four months, sailed around the Cape Horn, possibly with Tirpitz on board, um, where it met up with the uh, elite ost Geschwader under Admiral von Spee, where they then proceeded to go and sink uh, Admiral Craddock's uh, Royal Navy squadron, which is the first time the Royal Navy lost a battle since Napoleonic Wars. Um possibly again with Tirpitz on board. Uh they then sailed round the Horn again, um, where they uh decided to try and raid the Falkland Islands, which didn't go to plan for all the other German ships. It, but the Dresden escaped. Um the Nuremberg's boiler blew up, the Leipzig was too slow, and Charles and now decided to attack um battle cruisers and yeah, so Dresden basically put put a foot down and legged it and disappeared into rain and fog. It was never seen by the British again for several months. Um, the ship, again, probably with turpits on board, uh, went into hiding uh in the islands um to the south of South America. Um I can't remember I can never get the pronunciation right. Uh, uh Tierra del Fuego, the island the yeah. land of fire. Um where basically uh with a local German who lived in Punta Arenas um acting as their guide, they managed to hide in loads of little inlets and islands. Again, with Tirpitz on board. Um, and they hid from the British for about three months, um, with no coal. Um, they were in such a secluded area that the, um, the British maps showed that this, that the Dresden was actually on land. Um, so Matt had a couple of near misses, but eventually, um, a liner, which had been acting as a collier for one of the other, um, uh, the former liner Crom Prince Wilhelm, which was also attacking shipping, turned up. Um, This ship, which had no charts of the area, no information, and in the description, turned up, armoured by ignorance, hammering up and down um, shallow lanes. Luckily, they didn't get sunk. But the Sierra Cordoba then helped the Dresden escape. Um, And it was towing it round to the west cut as it goes round the horn for the third time. Again, With this time definitely with turpits on board. And... um, Ludek has decided that there's too many British behind him. That possibly the only course he could do is to head across the Pacific to where the, uh, towards Australia and the previous, and the former German colonies and hope to do something um, because he, there's nothing else they can do. And they're sending off ships to try and get coal. Well, like the Sierra Codoba. Um, they send off a radio signal pleading to any German ships to assist them. HMS Kent turns up, um, which is an armored cruiser, quite a lot bigger. Um, quite a lot more guns, uh, but a lot older, gives chase. Dresden manages to get away into the fog. Uh, um, but that for, for, for the Dresden, it's times pretty much. And I am getting turpits, bear, bear with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she pulls up at Massa Tierra, which is a small Chilean island, um, where they have a total of 10, 10 policemen on the island and the island is run by the lighthouse keeper. Uh, 300 angry Germans turn up with a light, with a, a light cruiser with 10 four inch guns and says, yeah, we know what neutrality is, but we need a week to repair our engines and you're going to let us, or we're going to blow you up. So the Chileans kind of leave them alone. Um, unfortunately, the um, blue deck has to send out another wireless message pleading for help. And this time he's met by HMS Kent and HMS Glasgow and the liner Arama who appear, point all their guns at him and demand that they lower their flags. Um, the Chileans then turn up and say, yeah, we were going to do that as well. And the Germans do what Germans do best. They return fire. And um, the British decided that the best thing was um, the sod sort of neutrality. will sort it out later. So they start shooting. Actually, they start shooting first, sorry. Um, and then a, a really famous German turns up in the form of Canaris, later admiral in the Abwehr, who's serving as a lieutenant. He tries to broker peace between the two parties. Um, he gets told... Either you surrender or we sink you. He goes back. The British officer goes over to tr- uh, surgeon goes over to look at the wounded on the Dresden under a white flag. And while he's there, the sneaky Germans blow up their magazine and sink the Dresden. Uh, most of the crew get on the shore, sink Deutschland über alles, and watch the ship sink. Enter in the bravest pig ever, Tirpitz, who has only been brought on for basically for slaughter and eating, manages to somehow break out of the cargo hold. Whilst the ship is exploding and on fire and being shelled and jumps off the deck into the, into the Pacific Ocean and starts to swim. Two sailors aboard HMS Glasgow see the pig in the water and, um, jump in after her, him. And, uh, obviously the pig does not want to surrender to the English because he's a German pig. Why would he surrender to the English? He continues to struggle, um, hoping to go down with the ship, I suppose, but they managed to fish the, fish the pig out and put him on HMS Glasgow where the pig pretty much defects and um, says about um, how awesome uh, he realized how, how nice life is on the cruiser. He's petted. Everybody loves him. And he is awarded the iron cross by the, by the, by the British crew. Um, whilst his previous crew get put into a, into a camp in Valparaiso. Um, he is then, like I said, he's treated as a celebrity aboard the ship. Everybody loves him. Um, and he sails with HMS Glasgow on many of his anti-pirate missions around um, and patrol missions in the South, South Atlantic and South Pacific, um, even chasing the German um, uh, liner Mauve, uh which was also raiding later on in the war. Uh, he comes back to England where he has to go into quarantine and is eventually um, taken in as the mascot of the uh, Whale Island Gunnery School. Uh, but sadly, his story does not end well for the pig. Um, but in a way that pleases me because I like pork and bacon. <laughs> um, they, although it displeases me because it's a German pig with a, with her own cross. Um, he is auctioned up by the, by, by, by the traitorous British, um, for, to raise money for war bonds. And in 1919, they raise £1,785, which is a quite a sizable amount of money. Um, and he was bought by, uh, William Cavendish, uh, Bentrick, the sixth Duke of Portland, and, um, who promptly had him slaughtered and his head mounted onto a, uh, onto a wooden shield, which was presented to the Imperial War Museum in 1920, uh, when it was in Crystal Palace. Uh, they also, uh, mounted two of his trotters into silver carvers, which I, I couldn't tell you when the museum acquired them, but, um, it was much, much later. I think they got them in auction um Tirpitz has been pretty much on display since then uh he was in the uh animals at war um sec uh gallery that they had uh, just before I started so about 13 years ago I think 12 years ago I can't tell you exactly but he had pride of the place there um he is still he was in the previous um a floor world war one gallery and he is still the center point for me my favorite part of the first world war gallery because it's about cruiser Krieg and German cruisers around the world causing havoc. There is, where we used to have wreckage of the Emden, who needs that? Emden's overrated. We have Tirpitz the pig mounted just next to, um, uh, the boy Cornwall's gun from Jutland because Tirpitz is just that much, just that as important as a Victoria Cross holder's gun. We have an Iron Cross wielding pig. Where, and
4: it's epic.
8: No, no pig has a better story. I mean, he didn't drink. Well, There's no record. I couldn't find any record. Well, he's of him German, drinking.
4: so if he didn't drink, I'd be frankly amazed if he wasn't chugging beer on the Dresden before oh, he ab- tried to do Absol- a run from the British.
8: Absolutely, yeah. He was. he probably be drinking beer and uh, eating schnitzel.
4: I mean, like there's pictures. I've been putting pictures up in the group chat of him. Like literally, they use him as a pillow on deck, don't they? Yeah,
8: yeah. There's a, uh, um, there's quite a few pictures in the IWA, which I I can't get to because the, they're behind a paywall. But um, there are some great pictures of him um, on the deck, just like as you say, being used as a pillow and being the, the crew just um, loved him. It's I mean, the fact like, that
4: he... he is massive. It's just a giant lump of bacon. Yeah,
8: yeah he... I mean, anyone for I've anyone at home, can... um, basically, it looks like Eric Pickles. Yeah, I mean, if you can see my dining room table, hang on, let me try and turn my phone around. Um, Yeah, like that. That kind of no, that's my door. Yeah, it's about the size of my table. He was absolutely huge.
1: Yeah.
8: Um, And the fact that the crew that he lived on Glasgow for several years without them eating him means that Mm -hmm. obviously they had an affection for him. Um, So, I mean, he couldn't talk or spell, but he didn't need to. He had the Iron Cross, which is something a vast majority of the German navy at the Battle of Jutland didn't get. So already he's doing doing a lot better.
4: I love the refusal to surrender, Holmes. What do you make of Turbit's the pig?
5: I liked him. I mean, you know, my first thought is if they put a pig in Das Boot, it would have been vastly. <laughs>
8: <laughs> he would have uh, taken up most of the sub. Yes,
5: yeah,
4: I. I, I, I think the sub would be it. leaning at whatever <laughs> end of the pig was at. he'd sink
13: the sub. They wouldn't oh. be able to rise. <laughs>
5: I think I might have built it up too much in my head because there was quite a lot of boaty stuff. And I was thinking, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And in the end, all he did, albeit impressively, was escape from a sinking ship and then go to the nearest people that would have him.
4: No, but the thing is, if you've seen the size of him, the fact that he didn't sink like a fucking stone is <laughs> miracle. <Yeah. terrible. laughs>
8: I mean, p- pigs, can't, pigs aren't known for their swimming. Apart from the ones in Bali, but yeah, they the, usually they sink in the stew pot. I, I mean, in the sea. <laughs> did it <laughs> build George any rafts?
3: A pig it used to swim <laughs> in a swimming pool.
1: Ooh.
3: Yeah. Did it build a raft? <laughs> um,
8: he, he he didn't have time to. And Dresden was mostly metal. Um. So he and because she was she was mostly on fire and exploding at the time. He thought, um, I don't. Who, who, I'm I'm that much of a pig. I don't need a raft. I can swim that. And yeah. he was off. In fact, he was probably on his way to the former German colonies in the Pacific with without a cruiser. Like bugger it, I'll just swim in the Pacific myself.
4: Yeah, undoubtedly. Beth, yeah. she's coughing. She's not available right now. Okay, I think we've still got Lockie to do, haven't we?
1: Yeah.
4: Let's go, Lockie. Is All it? Right. Is it set in the Boer War? Asking no. for a friend. All right, cool.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, Elena can come. I back. I like
4: that because I needed a lecture on the Boer War. Uh, go on.
2: <laughs> really?
4: Yeah, um, I did because I, I have all these books on it and I'm like, mm, I really should read them because they're relevant, but hmm, shiny things and back episodes of Only Falls and Horses on gold and it never happens. So oh, that was fun. I appreciated it
2: um i'm in my lane on this one it's first world war stuff um but this story does remind me actually of a of a of a comedy sketch a peter cook sketch that um a dear old friend of mine and Beth's, um poor old philip who we lost earlier this year used to he used to recite this over and over again and it's the um it's the two ra off- officers one squadron leader calls one of his um pilots over and uh, says the war's not going well perkins uh, we're at the stage where we need a futile gesture um, we want you to uh, take a crate over to Bremen, drop a few bombs, don't come back. Um, you know how a football team will sometimes play better with 10 men? Well, we want you to be the 11th man. Um, and it's a story of Véon the Pigeon, uh, the Fort Vaux Pigeon, um, the most decorated pigeon in world history, Croix de Guerre, uh, no less. Um, and the back Backstory is it's the Battle of Verdun, 1916, and uh, Fort Vaux is, is one of the larger uh, forts that ring the citadel city of uh, of Verdun, and it came under fire in February, which is when the offensive started, February 1916, uh, and come the end of May, uh, the Germans had advanced so far that Vaux became the centre of attention, and um, things were not good. For the, garrison. Uh, the kill, uh, the, the commander Sylvain Eugène uh, Reynal, um, sent off a few pigeons to the citadel to call for reinforcements. Uh, they'd already been stripped of all their artillery. Um, to to supply other positions, and so they were virtually uh, defenceless, except they decided to man a desperate defence inside the fort with whatever small arms they could cobble together and block up the corridors uh, of the fort. Uh, At the start of June, the 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 Germans managed to get themselves into the fort themselves. They assaulted with everything. Um, Flamethrowers, I mean, they'd been under constant artillery fire uh, since February, poison gas attacks, uh, and they had one pigeon left by this stage, which was subject to, to all of this um, a terrible treatment and, and was probably used as a, as a sexual plaything by the garrison uh, as well. You know what the French are like. Um, <laughs> so with things looking genuinely desperate, uh, and we're, we're, we're closing um, in on, you know, the, we're in the first week of June, so uh, months uh, of attention from the enemy and the garrison. Um, Reynal decides it's time to send the last pigeon, uh, off. So, uh, this, this battered, in many ways, uh, bird, uh, shell-shocked and, and probably rogered, took some coaxing, uh, to get into the air. Um, but Julie did. And, uh, its mission was to fly back, uh, to the citadel at Verdun, uh, with a desperate message, relieve us uh, urgently um or or thought will will fall, and the bird could have cleared off, you know, and who could have blamed it? uh just just disappear, fly away um uh but this you know in, in terrible condition this bird uh took off i imagine several uh german machine gun companies uh saw it uh as it went and uh and it was peppered with uh with with bullets, but off it flew and it duly did its did its duty it flew back to the citadel. Uh, in Verdun delivered the message of, of urgent relief uh, needed. Of course, there's nothing that they could do in the citadel, um, for, for Vaux. They were under too much pressure themselves and, and Vaux was completely surrounded. Uh, and so three days later, um, the, the, the fort actually fell anyway. Um, so this is the, the futile gesture, uh, I guess you could say. But I tell you what, um, that was as far as the Germans went. Um, They advanced no further from Fort Vaux. And in fact, uh, within days, things were starting to turn around. Uh, And so I put it to you that this gassed, burned, bombed, probably buggered, but definitely unbowed uh, pigeon was utterly heroic and inspirational. It was the 11th man that inspired the uh, French army to, to greatness. Uh, and to recapture uh, the Fort Vaux, which happened later in the year, and indeed recapture all the uh, forts. And uh, possibly the opening of the Somme Offensive was less important than we all thought because they had the inspirational example of this pigeon uh, to look at. There you go, Véan, uh pigeon, croix de guerre, the greatest animal in history.
4: Can I back you up, Lockie, because I'm just going to say that to show you how well regarded this pigeon was, here is an account of another pigeon that served in World War I comes from Monty in his early memoirs, and I found it the other day and cried with laughter. <clears throat> During the Somme battle that summer, an infantry brigade which had better remain nameless was to be leading brigade in a divisional attack. It was important that the brigade commander should receive early information of the progress of his forward troops, since this would affect the movement of reserves in the rear. The problem then arose of how to ensure the early arrival of the required information and intense interest was aroused at Brigade HQ when it was disclosed that a pigeon would be used to convey the news. In due course, the bird arrived and was kept for some days in a special pigeon loft. When the day of the attack arrived, the pigeon was given to a soldier to carry. He was to go with the leading subunits and was told that at a certain moment an officer would write a message to be fastened to the pigeon's leg. He would then release the pigeon, which would fly back to its loft at Brigade HQ. The attack was launched and a brigade commander waited anxiously for the arrival of the pigeon. Time was slipping by and no pigeon arrived. The brigadier walked feverishly about outside his HQ dugout. The soldiers anxiously searched the skies, but there was no sign of any pigeon. And then at last the cry went up, the pigeon! And sure enough, back it came and alighted safely in the loft. Soldiers rushed to get the news and the brigade commander roared out, give me the message! It was handed to him, and this is what he read. I am absolutely fed up with carrying this bloody bird about. <laughs> so there you go. Pigeons, not necessarily heroic and awesome in warfare. Vayon was. Dispute that, Beth.
7: I mean, if you think I don't like dogs, birds are even worse. <laughs> uh,
4: what about
12: pigs? <laughs>
7: I am generally not the most animal person. Like I don't like animals. Um, yeah, I, I think.
11: that Why you gave
2: them the colours? Yeah, yeah I, you, know. I mean, yeah, he's he's you were expressing your hatred that. for for, for <laughs> animals earlier. It's just my one, whereas <laughs> yeah. you hate all animals. <laughs>
1: I, I would have done one for one where a dog got mangled or something. You'd have been cheering. <laughs> yeah. Well.
7: Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I do. I, I do quite like that story. It's like the little little pigeon trying to fight it, fight its way through to get the message. So it is, it is a nice story. But you know, there's so many great stories to choose from from today. Uh,
4: they're all they're all good in their own way. So that was diplomatic. Holmes.
5: Mm. I mean, we don't know if this pigeon smoked, but as he was French, I think we could assume that he probably did. So that's one. I pigeon.
4: drank a lot of wine and ate a lot of cheese.
5: Yeah, picked. Um, uh, this is a true one, I know, because I've been there, and there's a plaque upon quite a big plaque on the fort outside that tells you all this. Um, it's good. I, it's good. I quite like it. I, I noticed you mentioned that it might have been responsible for the change in the Battle of Somme, which you left off the serious podcast <laughs> on the Battle of the Somme we did the other day. So I'm not entirely sure how much you believe that, but um, no, no questions. So I'm reasonably familiar with it.
4: Okay, right, that's it. We have gone round the room. some great animals there. Uh, I feel like you've all paid your penance and actually your penance for next week is even better. So let's tell everybody now. Um, the smuttiness level in this chat uh, is barely containable and we are doing uh, history's greatest sexcapade so the most epic sex anecdote <laughs> anecdote you can find in history. I tell you now, Eleanor Yaniger is chomping at the bit. Emma Southern's coming in for that one. Uh, it's going to be a crowded room and quite hilarious. And then just for shits and giggles, uh, his own instigation, our guest judge will be Zach. Because he blushes like a mofo, cries with laughter and goes loony if he has to say any rude word whatsoever so we're all going to get much enjoyment out of that but let's concentrate on picking a winner tonight i know what job Martin's... that's another dirty word what's that <laughs> job
9: job job <laughs> <Chris>. <laughs> but washing machine isn't
4: i think did he not did you not have to say the word penis on another podcast that was quite it was quite amusing Ch-
9: yeah that was the chode one with napoleon
4: That
11: was it, yeah. (laughs) Can I just remind everybody that this is the person, I am the one who brought you Hitler's baby juice.
6: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Zach. Didn't
4: you also
11: do the mysterious death one? The what one? Yes, I did. Yes, James, I did, but I I spelled your, um, the sex piano story for that one. That That one's hilarious.
4: that was that was our inspiration for having you as a judge, wasn't it, Zach? It was your idea to come on as a judge on that one. Um, but, yeah, that was the way that Zach tried to manoeuvre around that story of the piano going up and down with the dead people shagging on it or whatever it was was so amusing that we're we're in for a couple of hours of that next week, so that should be fun. But let's go round the room while the judges decide uh, who has won tonight and who was bullshitting. So let's find out who you would pick if you couldn't have your own animal. Charlie?
3: Oh, it's the sex space tortoises, and I don't care if they're not real, they're genius.
4: <laughs> yeah, this is pretty cool. Clyde?
1: I'm afraid I'm going with the tortoises as well. It was just too good to be true.
4: is just vindicating next week's topic, isn't it?
2: Lucky? I'm going to go with Copenhagen. I think a horse that does its duty is, uh, is worthy of applause. Um, and the fact that it would decided that fucking enough was enough by the end as well, but it's it a very human uh, aspect on it. So, yeah, Copenhagen for me.
4: Marcus looks stunned, but appreciative. appreciative. <laughs> I've had three drinks now. Marcus?
2: I was going to go with uh, Wojak
9: because he's a gunner, uh, but I'm afraid I've heard it so many times. That I'm going to go with uh, Boy because he's a royalist, not a parliamentarian. and <laughs> So am I. So,
4: yes. yeah, royalists together. Brilliant. Zach?
11: It's got to be the tortoises, but I think that's the bullshit one.
4: Ah, okay. Kit.
11: I'm going to go with uh, the Rachel Riley horse. I can't remember its name. <laughs>
9: <laughs> <laughs> that is good enough. Rachel Riley horse.
12: <laughs> oh. Kate. Beautiful Jim Key. Because yeah. I, I looked at it myself.
4: Yeah, it was, it's quite a muted one, but I'm not sure that isn't bullshit, but it appears to be yeah, quite It's
12: honest. definitely real. 100%. It's definitely real. And yeah. it's an it's a horse. I had to pick a horse, right?
4: Yeah, but I still think the Bible thing is bullshit.
12: Probably. But the horse actually existed.
4: Unless it kneeled down and prayed when people started reciting <laughs> it. I'm not buying that it understood what was going I've,
12: on. I've had horses that kneel down on command, so yeah, that, that could happen.
4: James?
13: Um, I'm actually going to go with voitech And I agree with you, Alex. I think close bullshit influence.
3: Mmm
4: Sam? Sam's Chris Sam's Why am I calling that? let me do that again Chris. it happens
13: you'd be
8: surprised how, how even people, people call you
4: Sam on a daily basis because it's your second name
8: um we had a supervisor that I worked with for about nine years and I was Sam um <laughs> okay, I feel
4: slightly less sad about it now
8: um the, the only thing is coming back to my name is um the, there's a line in Game On which, might, which anyone who's as old as I might remember um, they used to call me Martin Henson but um, there's a line in it where one of the characters says Chris, Chris is the name that turds would have if turds had names and my sister would say that to me all the time
0: so you know <laughs> maybe
8: Sam's preferable, I don't know but, um, but uh, I, I'm going to go highbrow and go with um, Boy as well because um, I was always a big fan of Prince Rupert being a German running around supporting the king so yeah I'm going to go with Boy too
4: and Alina
10: this is German pig.
4: Yay! Okay. I'm going for Turpitz as well. Turpitz is legend, but I do like the idea of the French pigeon as well, just because he seems more determined to put a shift in than most French people I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can say like, all my best friends are French. Uh right, okay. So let's find out. Have we checked with everyone? Yeah. Let's find out who our judges picked. Holmes and Beth, what have you what have you gone for?
5: Well, honourable mentions for the uh Alex and Alina, the Space Tortoises, and, and, and beautiful Jim Key. We were very impressed with that. But this week we have to give it to Wojciech, I think I pronounced it right, the bear, Alina's one.
4: Yay, I win for once! <laughs> oh, <my laughs> God, we are never going to hear the end of it. And who did you call as the bullshit artist?
7: I called the bullshitter straight away. Um, and it was Clive.
4: Um, Clive. No, oh, Clive, you're a shit what? liar. He was the bullshitter. Is there any truth in your story?
1: Well, everything apart from the dog was true, yeah.
4: Okay. <laughs> 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 Possibly the fact that the dog wasn't in it enough was your downfall. Right, okay, so... And the, fact,
7: and the fact that he mentioned Man Racer House, which I've actually been to and know why it's called that.
1: But... Man so... Racer House is named after the Catalan town where Loyola went and spent a year living on the street. Which was Man raiser. And that's why there are lots of Man raiser houses around. But not the dog. Not the dog. Not the dog. The dog didn't exist. Oh.
4: Better luck <laughs> next time, Clive. Right, okay. So history's Well going I have to next
1: bullshit week next week. week as well.
4: What, what? <laughs> <laughs> I miss that.
1: I have to bullshit next week. But my <laughs> my worry about bullshit next week is it's just making up a sexual <laughs> fantasy. fan <laughs> yeah.
4: I, I could definitely, I'm gonna to have to pick the, uh, bullshitter carefully next week because I feel some of you, if I let your imaginations run wild, fuck those, well, we'll end up. <laughs> um, so join us for that. Until then, join us tomorrow for a sharp special. We are discussing all things sharp eagle tomorrow. Uh, we had Assumpter Cerner back. We had Scott Cleverdon. We had Gavin O'Hurley. he was a riot. And is this, yeah, this is the one with Cocky, isn't it, Marcus? Cocky. We got, uh, we got Cocky,
9: yeah, oh, Michael Cochran.
4: Michael and the, a and the Michael ben Cochran think.
9: drinking games, yeah. which Michael are now, Cochran.
4: Yeah. is my
9: goal, is to go drinking with uh, Michael yeah. Cochran.
4: We want to go out on the lash with this Find out He a legend. Everyone's favorite memory of filming Sharp involves Cocky getting them shit-faced and into a really amusing situation. So this is a blinding one, so don't miss that.